Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode called Fastest, an oral history of the 1992 Hot Rod Magazine Fastest Streetcar Shootout, you'll hear from the racers, the spectators, and the magazine editors that created an event which changed the course of drag racing and the high-performance aftermarket forever. There are still hard feelings, there are still great stories, and now we dive back 30 years to learn about what happened in Memphis of 1992. The hottest growing segment in American motorsports right now is Dragon Drive. And the best place to follow it all is in the pages of Sick the Mag. With incredible photography, storytelling, and the inside scoops only those truly in the Dragon Drive world can get, Sick the Mag is a must-have subscription for anyone who loves the adventure, speed, and hard-fought world of Dragon Drive competition. Visit SickTheMagazine.com to get your subscription today. That's SickTheMagazine.com. Get your subscription today for your friends or family that love the drag and drive world. There's no better coverage, there's no better place, and always remember, it's a sick world out there. Welcome to this episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast, one that is uh, large by its size and scope, one that is different by its delivery, and one that I think you are thoroughly going to enjoy. We're going to go back to 1992 during the summer in Memphis, Tennessee, and we're going to tell the story of the Hot Rod Magazine Fastest Streetcar Shootout, and it will be told by the people that were there. You will hear my voice sparingly during the course of this podcast. Mostly you will hear about the racers and from the racers, as well as the magazine editors, and even people that were at the event as spectators to give the scope, the size, the breadth, and the depth of what this event actually meant, how it came together, and some of the stories from the racetrack. There are people who are enamored with the history of this event. As you'll hear, there are people who are bitterly disappointed with how it all went down. The feelings are still raw in some cases. The language may be a bit raw in some cases. But as you will come to find out, the impact of this event on the sport of drag racing is massive. The one thing I will leave you with before we get into the show is this. Without the 1992 Hot Rod Magazine Fastest Streetcar Shootout, the great movement of drag and drive events like Hot Rod Magazine Drag Week, Rocky Mountain Race Week, Sick Week, and a host of others that continue to spring up would likely have never happened. It was a time and a place that everything came together in the right spot, and while it wasn't the first gathering of the fastest three cars in America, it would prove to be the launch pad for an entirely new form of the sport of drag racing that has now taken the world by storm. And so, as it is only appropriate, we begin at the beginning. The first audio you'll hear is Jeff Smith at the racetrack in Memphis explaining to a film crew exactly what this race is about. What we've done here this weekend is put together with Hot Rod Magazine a, uh, a shootout of the fastest streetcars in America. Where this came from was we did a story for the September issue uh, talking about what could be the, uh, you know, at least our choice of the 10 fastest streetcars in America. And from that evolved the idea to go ahead and actually do a shoot actually do a race because these guys all live in different parts of the country and it was a way to bring as many cars as possible together and actually see who is the baddest guy in the country who's the baddest in the land so uh, very quickly this thing came together we threw some rules together that were we felt would kind of level the playing field a little bit and then uh, asked as many people as we felt we could uh, that would be interested in coming down and doing this thing to come down and see who really is uh, who is the fastest Jeff Smith, and, uh, and in 1992, I was the editor of Hot Rod Magazine, and um, we had uh, we were looking for something new, right? I mean, magazine guys always do that, but um, um, Joe Pettit, uh, one of my staff guys, had had been to a race that uh, Max Carter won. I don't recall it off the top of my head. I think we did a story on that on that race, and he came back and said. Uh, we were, you know, it wasn't even a staff meeting. I was sitting in my office, and he walks in, sticks his head in the door, and says, "Hey, um, I just had this idea." 
what if we did a story on like the 10 fastest streetcars in America? And I almost fell out of my chair. It was like, holy crap. That I said, whatever you're working on, stop doing what you're doing and, and do that. Do that story. He goes, how am I going to do it? I said, well, let's, let's get the staff together and let's sit down and try and figure it out. And, and that's, where it, that's where it started. That's where it started. I'm David Freiberger, and I was a staffer on Hot Rod Magazine when we invented the fastest streetcar shootout in 1992. The way this all went down at the time is that the staffers were going to various places around the country and seeing this sort of growing, you know, groundswell of the fastest streetcar thing where the street racers were sort of getting onto the track and starting to actually claim numbers. And a guy named Joe Pettit, who was on the staff of Hot Rod for a while, had gone to an event called the Top Gun Shootout that was in Atlanta. And uh, some of the other guys have been in the Chicago area. I, in particular, had been to Detroit and had spent a bunch of time with Danny Scott and Rick Dyer and the whole Cars guys, and I had actually driven those cars around on the street with them and gone to cruise nights with them and been to the track. And so when we got back to the office, people were sitting around talking about, you know, man, these guys have the quickest cars, and these guys have the quickest cars. And I remember we would always have staff lunches in Jeff Smith's office in that historic Hot Rod Magazine building at uh, 8490 Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. We would sit there overlooking Sunset and eat like our pork fried rice or whatever and have discussions about editorial things. And we started arguing about what is the fastest streetcar in America from all these different events. And uh, we did a story that was the fastest streetcars in America. And in sorting out which cars were going to be in the story, I ultimately said, you know, there's only one way to actually know and that is to race them. Jeff Smith was a huge Tim Allen fan at the time. And so when I go, you know, there's only way, one way to find out. Jeff goes, uh? <laughs> with sort of the Tim Allen monkey thing. And he gets on the phone with Richard Small from Flowmaster, who gets on the horn with the NMCA, who is running drag racing, but basically for stock muscle cars. They probably had stock muscle car classes, and then they had Nostalgia Superstock. So Richard Small talks NMCA into allowing Hot Rod to have our first race in September of 92 there at Memphis at the NMCA shootout. So that's my version of how it all began. Uh, it, it became uh, much more than that, obviously. And uh, Richard Small probably, he's the PR guy. At that time, he was the PR guy with Flowmaster. And we were working with them all the time on different things. So at one point, I called, I think either Joe called him or I called him or something, looking for fast cars, right, that we could that we could jump on and do. And, and what we decided to do is just, you know, trust people and say, well, send us a, a, a copy of your time slip and we'll just, you know, we'll buy into that. That's That's how it started. And Richard was the one that said, well, you know, this is okay, but what you really need to do is have a race. It was like, well, sure, but <laughs> the company was not company was not going to allow us to do that. Absolutely not. You know, for us to sponsor a race was inconceivable, right? So that wasn't going to work. And he said, well, what if we do it? What if we sponsor it? If, you know, if we can figure out a way to do it. And how we figured, how we decided to end up doing it was piggybacking with NMCA. So we made a deal with the NMCA, the National Muscle Car Association, to do a story on their event and and you know a, a separate story of their event, and then we do and we piggyback our fastest streetcar thing on top of that, and that's how it started. My name is Rick Dyer. I drove a 1969 Camaro. I worked for Cars Motorsports, Cars Incorporated. 
marketing and uh, sales. We were all down at uh, Commerce, Georgia, and racing in a race down there that uh, we had got invited to. It was like a super Chevy in a race, and uh, we went down there, and a guy had invited us down there and said, if you don't come, I'm going to write Hot Rod Magazine and say, all oh, you guys that say you're fast and got fast cars must not be fast because you didn't show up. So he stirred up a whole lot of business, and a bunch of us guys up from Detroit here heard about it, and uh, the ones that was in the magazines and said, um, we're going to go. So we went down to Commerce, Georgia, and um, we raced our cars, and those guys had never seen nothing like that. These 3,600-pound cars doing wheel stand and going high eights and low nines, and that night hanging out in a, in a restaurant, driving around the town and, and having a good time. And a guy by the name of Joe Pettit that worked for Hot Rod, was down there at the time, saw it, and couldn't believe what he was seeing, something new. And he went back to Hot Rod, and he said, you ought to see what I just saw. And he started talking to them about these cars that are street legal, heavy, heavy cars, driving them on the street, standing them on the bumper, and going, you know, low nines and uh, high eights. And uh, he caught the attention of um, David Freiberger and um, Jeff Smith, and uh, and they started uh, contacting us about uh, doing this race in Memphis. And naturally, we uh, had done a lot of Super Chevys, and uh, a bunch of us went down there to see what this was all about because. We thought we were, we thought for a streetcar we could compete, and we went down there. My name is Dan Scott. I'm Goodrich, Michigan, and I had the 67 turquoise Camaro. Well, yeah, in fact, um, we're the ones that actually created that race. Absolutely. Um, Cole Quinnell, Dave Fireburger, they actually come out to our homes and sat with us and talked. Um, this started in Atlanta, Georgia, with a guy named Bill Kugel first. And um, Joe Pettit was out there at the racetrack watching that, with, along with uh, another guy, Steve Francis, I believe his name was. From uh, He was a freelance photographer. But um, those guys saw our cars and just fell in love with them and said, we need to generate some type of, you know, continue doing this. And from there, that's when we... Uh, we worked together and started developing the rules. We were hoping to be some rules because in Georgia there was no rules and it was just totally unfair, you know? So that's how this got started. That, you, you, you had no idea what you were going to race. It could have been a 1,500-pound car or a 6,000-pound car. It didn't matter. It, there was no rules at all. The guy actually personally called me directly. He says, if your cars run like you say they do in the magazine, he says, you could win this race. I said, what do I got to prove? I don't need to drive all the way down to Atlanta, Georgia, prove this out. So I didn't want him to go. I wasn't even going to go. But he convinced me to go. And, and then, of course, uh, Rick and I, uh, uh, we, we took our both our cars down there. And, and we did okay. I ended up running up at that event. And, of course, that's when Joe Pettit and the team put together uh, the rest of the rules for, for NMCA to try to take this on. 
I think virtually everybody who we invited actually showed up. And if you look at the range of vehicles that were there, it was wildly different than what you see these days in any one single class of drag racing. I mean, we had small block cars, big block cars, nitrous turbos, naturally aspirated, big tire, small tire, all different suspension configurations, all in the same class. And that was basically because we didn't know what we didn't know. And we just sort of threw everyone together. The wild thing that came from that is a big discussion about what the rules of this thing even should be. And that happened before we ever even took a car down the track i remember standing with jeff smith on the the metal steps that are on the back of that small brick tower at memphis with all of the racers all gathered around and having a conversation slash argument about the question that is eternal to this day which is what is a street car who should be allowed in this all sorts of conversations about big tire, small tire, all that. The things that really came down hard, I remember at the time, were the conversation about should full tube chassis cars be allowed and sh or should it just be back half cars or should it just be small tire cars? And at the time, Jeff Smith, who was the editor of Hot Rod, got to make those decisions. His opinion was, you know, full tube chassis cars are cruising around at the Street Machine Nationals in Decoin, Illinois, and so I can't not call them a street car. So I'm going to allow full tube chassis cars. And whereas those of us on the staff kind of didn't think they should allow anything but back half cars. And I was very much in the camp of the cars guys. They were like my guys, my buddies, like Rick Dyer. He was all about the back half car. But anyway, that horse left the barn. Tube chassis was allowed. But the thing that Jeff did not allow was alcohol. Huge argument over whether we should or should not have uh, methanol-powered cars there, and that was not allowed in the end. Me and Danny and a few other guys, uh, Anderson, we all got together, a bunch of us, and said, these are the kind of rules that we think, if you're going to run something like that, <clears throat> excuse me, would be very fair, because these are street cars, these are not race cars. So the rules got passed around through eight or nine people, and I actually have a set of the original rules that I wrote back to Hot Rod, signed by a bunch of guys that they thought was fair, and submitted it to Freiberger and, um, and uh, Cole Cornell and Ed Kaneen and Jeff Smith, and they looked them over, and they said, um, we need to put our two cents together, and they put that together and said, let's go to Memphis. Yeah, we, we, we designed the rules so there would be at least 33 or 3,200-pound cars with working headlights and uh, trim. And uh, a lot of people that were, were involved, that's what they wanted because they had real streetcar. We, some of the rules that I thought was mandatory that you must have headlights, not painted on headlights, you got to have roll-up windows. You got to have a headliner. You got to have a full interior ex exhaust exiting the rear. Uh, no painted on headlights and taillights. Um, uh, our cars had radios in them and backup lights and and uh, dome lights and and that's what those guys when you first saw those cars down at um, uh, Commerce, Georgia. That's what impressed them is that these guys are driving them on the streets and going. You know, low nines and high eights. Try putting, you know, we said should have no forward mounted hood scoops unless it came uh, single four barrels, no symmetrical heads, and 
we just got right in rules that, uh, matter of fact, we were penalized for a Lincoln because they all thought that a Lincoln made the car go faster. A Lincoln don't make a car go faster. A Lincoln puts drag in the car. It's very safe and it doesn't blow up. But they put weight on us because they thought we were trying to trick them. And then later on, they found out that you know we carried a little more weight because they were um, they were bulletproof. So I thought, well, this is, you know, democracy and drag racing. What a great concept. Here, let's get everybody together, get the racers together. And this is what I learned. I don't want to have anything to do with making rules or enforcing rules. This is, this is hell on earth. This is not good. Everybody's mad at me. Everybody's mad at me. And, uh, and the guy, the guy from, from Missouri who wanted to run, you know, I, I thought, I forget now who it was. One of the big guys, you know, and there are a lot of big guys in this event, right? You know, but uh, I mean, was ready to just cold cock this guy from Missouri because he was causing all kinds of problems and raising hell, and you know, so it turned into a near riot there for a while. It was pretty crazy, um, and 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 it, it re- I realized that okay, everybody's out for themselves here, you know, so they're all pushing for different things and. This isn't going to work. I'm just going to have to come up with some rules, and, that, and you're you're going to live with them, and you're not going to be happy with me, and and that's not good. I was that was a situation where, see, when you work for a magazine, you know, you're a hero, right? I mean, you go show up at somebody's shop, and, and you're going to do a story with them, and they yeah, they lay out, roll out the roll, the red carpet, and they, you get treated like royalty. And it's not that we expect that we don't, but at the same time, we don't expect to be attacked. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I was thinking at the top of the ladder there at the bottom of the tower, I'm thinking, they're going to come after me here in a minute, you know? <laughs> and all I've got, I'm, there's, there's no way out, you know? So what's going to happen here? And things calmed down, and it was okay. But, but you know, nobody was really very happy because we tried to make it, you know, follow the spirit of the, of the law, the rules, rather than, well, you know, God, that never works, you know. So from, from the very beginning, it's like, because people afterwards, you know, when you start to see it grow, it's like, well, you know what you should do? You should be like Wally Parks and take this and run with this. And I thought, that's the last thing I want to do. <laughs> you know, I'm really good at editing magazines. I do not want to run an event or organization. I, you know, like National Muscle Cars, you know, some spinoff of that, uh, no oh my god you know no no <laughs> so if, if if somebody else wants to do that you have my blessing you know everything else blah 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 but no i i learned my lesson there right away i know that the 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 rules were ridiculously short yeah and we had a guy from i think winsfield missouri someplace in missouri who wanted to run his car uh on alcohol and one of the rules was got to run gasoline. He showed up anyway, and and you know raised the raised the cane because he wanted to run his car. And looking back at it from the perspective of, of history, it that we probably should have done that. We probably should have allowed it, but it, it, because this is kind of a run with your brung Southern style match race, you know, just good old boys going at it kind of thing. In the long run, it probably would have made it more entertaining, but um, it, it it did sound a little bit like he would have an advantage. The thing that I remember most about that conversation was Jeff Burke. 
he was there. I guess maybe this guy was from Missouri who had this mid-year Corvette that was running on methanol. And they were, they were arguing, you know, why shouldn't methanol be allowed? And everybody's answer was because we published in the rules in the magazine that it wouldn't be. So why would you show up and argue it? But that's what he did. And a, every single racer was in this guy's face going, no, man, come on. And it came down to you can't buy methanol at an average gas pump. You can buy gasoline at an average gas pump. And his argument is, but you can't buy race gas. And all of you guys are running race gas. You can't buy nitrous at a gas station. You guys are all running on nitrous. It was kind of a, a, a blood feud. But uh, in the end, it turned into gasoline only. He's Max Carter, LaGrange, Kentucky, 66 Chevy 2 Nova with a 557. Two dominators, two nitro systems, and a glide in it. And like at the hot rod race, there was one asshole that showed up down there, Bill Wickman. And uh, he had that channel worn, kind of yellow 65 Corvette with a blower on alcohol. And he came down there, and I don't know why he picked on Rod Saber, I guess because he had another Corvette. But uh, he sat down there screaming at Rod like that uh, he should be able to run alcohol. And Rod is is really a nice guy, and he's kind of timid. And his girlfriend is as sweet as she can be. And uh, I sat there and listened to it, and I just kind of watched him. And then finally, he got under my skin, and I told him, I said, hey, dumb. Why are you yelling at Rod? Rod hadn't said one freaking word to you. He ain't got red with you one freaking time, and you're sitting there screaming and spitting on him when you're talking to him. He don't have anything to do with these rules. These rules were published way in advance, and if you wanted to race, if you're too fucking stupid to read no alcohol, you know, maybe you should have got somebody to read it for you and figure out how to run your car on gas because blowers will run on gasoline. And it's like, you know, maybe you should have figured that out and uh, before you got here and decided to uh, change the rules for everybody. And I said, you know, just and another thing, why don't you just go over there and fuck yourself? Because everybody's just tired of listening to you screaming and hollering and cussing. You know, you ain't racing. Like, you know, it says right there in the rules, no alcohol, dumbass. Uh, I'm Mike Moran. I drove a 79 Pennell Station Wagon in the 92 Memphis Shootout. I'll be honest with you, I don't even think I looked at the rules. I just wanted to go, and I just thought it was great. It was so new back then, rules were even new to us. We, you know, we just, I, I just figured everybody was going to show up, and um, everybody was over the minimum weight because none of us had race cars. So there was just, if there was a minimum weight on it, I couldn't even tell you what it was. None of us were even close. My opinion, and I believe Dyer was right on with me, these things need to look streetable. They had to be street maintained. We tried to make sure everything in the exterior and the interiors were all streetable stuff. For example, in my car, you open up the door, the dome lights still come on. The radio worked in the car. Even though it was difficult to listen to because of the louder mufflers, but, I mean, it still worked, you know? And all we did was back half the cars, and to us, that was the modification. The, the rest of the car was pretty much a factory stock car. Uh, Rod Sabry, I'm from Manchester, Maryland, and uh, 
My, my car was a 1957 Corvette. Yeah, well, I actually did think I would be at a disadvantage, but I had been in contact with a lot of the other guys that were running pretty fast uh, at that time, and and I, you know, of course, I was the only, I was the Lone Ranger, the only one really with no nitrous or blower or anything, and um, my car was pretty fast, but I did have a weight advantage. I, I'm not sure. Maybe Jeff Smith could look back at the rules, but I think I had to weigh 2450 or 2500. I don't think it was any more than that. And the nitrous cars were 3000 or more. So I thought, you know what? I, I should really attend this thing because I think we could do pretty good. And we ended up being number one qualifier. And so it is at this point, I want to transition our story. We now know the genesis of the event. We have met a couple of the players, and there are many more to meet. The next phase of this story is to be told to the voices of the other members of the top 10 I was able to contact. And I want to clarify a couple things as we go forward. These are not the only people that raced at this event. They are, in fact, the people I was able to contact. And sadly, as the inexorable march of time moves on for all of us, several of the people involved in this story, like Steve Graybeck, Stan Shaw, and a handful of others, have since passed away, unable to share with us their recollections and stories from this 1992 Hot Rod Magazine Fastest Streetcar Shootout. But as we're going to move through, you're going to hear from the majority of the members of the top 10, the fastest streetcars in America. And the next phase of this story, in an era that happened long before the advent of social media, in an era long before anybody had a smartphone in their pocket or had the ability to receive email, well, maybe some people had that ability, but very few of these racers did, how did they hear about it? What attracted them to do this? And what was it feeling like when they arrived in Memphis? We'll get into the race itself later on, but the next phase of this story in some ways is most fascinating of all. The hottest growing segment in American motorsports right now is Drag and Drive. And the best place to follow it all is in the pages of Sick the Mag. With incredible photography, storytelling, and the inside scoops only those truly in the Drag and Drive world can get, Sick the Mag is a must-have subscription for anyone who loves the adventure, speed, and hard-fought world of drag-and-drive competition. Visit SickTheMagazine.com to get your subscription today. That's SickTheMagazine.com. Get your subscription today for your friends or family that love the drag-and-drive world. There's no better coverage, there's no better place, and always remember, it's a sick world out there. Uh, Steve Johnson, uh, current occupation is owner of Induction Solutions. And at the 1992 shootout, I drove an 81 Firebird owned by Dave Simpson at the time. Um, actually, at that point, I had kind of transitioned into working for Dave, who owned a bunch of cars he had bought. And essentially, I was, you know, kind of in a transition into becoming a professional, you know, race car driver for a period of time. Uh, the irony to it is at the time in 92, Simpson was spending money on cars left and right. And... I had a car that I owned that I was building um, at that point in time. I was street racing on the streets of Chicago and <laughs> Northwestern Illinois, Wisconsin, and uh, working for him. And we had a few things in the works and we were working with Chevy. We were going to all the super Chevy shows. So we had the ProMod thing was really big then. And we had started a program with Shafiroff. We were had a car on order from Bickle. So I was going to, you know, put the ProMod program together for 93. So when the shootout came about, um, we got with Schaffer off. We started talking about it, and I had a, a new 638 engine for him that I was putting in my Chevelle. And I, I guess through all of his media contacts, the cat got out of the bag, and before you know it, the engine I had had big chief heads on it, and the thing got outlawed. So 
that's where the Firebird came into the picture. Uh, the guy, the, the John that had owned that was a friend of Shafiroff's, knew the car, I guess, was available. And kind of at a last-minute deal, we agreed to buy that car. Shafiroff built a 615 with a conventional head. We threw the thing together. Um, I drove out at the last minute. Basically, we completed the car, attempted to test it at Long Island Dragway, which was a catastrophe because the track at the time had about a six-inch drop-off, I think, at the eighth mile. And every time the car would come off that eighth mile of concrete, it'd break the tires loose and get all loose. And we basically opted to throw it in the box and head to Memphis. Randy Lambert. Um, Crown Point, Indiana, 1967 Impala. Uh, operator, City of Crown Point. Yeah, I think I seen it in Hot Rod Magazine or NMCA or something. I met, well, in 1988, the NMCA put on a race at Union Grove, Wisconsin, and said, anybody that thinks they got a badass shark, show up here. You know? So I showed up. I ended up winning the thing. They had an open class called. Uh, king of the streets so i ended up winning it i went up against chucky samuels and spiro pap all them guys are from around here and Pappas and all them boys i beat them all so um so then this came up and i said well i'm gonna go give it a try mike moran explains how he heard of the event it was a guy if i remember right it was a guy named joe joe pettis i think believe he was a freelancer for hot rod magazine and he was going around to all the different cities doing exposés on the cities uh you know street racing right like chicago detroit um different places like that and he made his way around to us uh there was like three or four of us that were you know contenders and uh he started kicking around the idea saying that they were trying to put together something like you know we know who's the baddest in chicago we know who's the baddest in detroit and we uh we're thinking about saying who's the baddest in the country or the world and we're thinking about putting something together would you guys be interested and we all said yes but i'll bet it was a full year after that before anything ever came about that was probably around 1990 for max carter it was the ultimate challenge of taking on the best in the world so we knew what we were in for. We were going to Memphis, and we tested on it. We tested on it all year long, and, you know, we had our reserve big tune-up, but never never ran it that much because uh, we didn't really think we needed it. And you didn't know who was going to show up, and I was hoping I was hoping everybody was going to show up. I mean, I wanted to see some shit. I mean, I, I was hoping the Chicago Hitman and Mike Alberts. Uh, I mean, I, just, I was just hoping everybody was going to be there because if I was going to, you know, race these guys, I'm going to race them all. And, uh, David Lemon, Somerville, Alabama, 67, Chevy 2. I think one of my buddies told me about it, that it was coming up. And, uh, you know, then, then I started uh, kind of investigating myself. And, yeah, I, I, I knew that, uh, you know, it was one of the things I had to be at, you know. Ken Anderson may not have been sure about how he heard about the race, but he knew he had to be there. Um, I'm not sure how we heard about it. We always raced those races even before Hot Rod did that. Like, we raced NMCA for years. Know, somebody told us about it, I'm sure. Once Rod Sabre got word that this was going to happen, he knew it was a place his Corvette had to be. You know, uh, that's really odd that you asked that because a lot of people have asked me that because social media wasn't prevalent like it is now. And, you know, we find out everything now through social media. And uh, 
gosh, I didn't, I wasn't on any kind of social media back at the time. So, um, just found out, uh, some friends started calling me and said, Hey, have you heard, you know, that kind of thing. And I started checking around on it. Of course, uh, you know, the, I know, you know, the whole thing started from hot rod magazine did the uh, fastest, what they thought was the fastest, uh, 10 cars in the country. Yeah. Yeah, and my car was part of that. So Hot Rod actually had contacted me as well and said, we're thinking about, was, matter of fact, Jeff Smith. Uh, I had been talking back and forth with him, and he said, you know, we're thinking about putting something together here with the 10 cars that we featured, plus anyone else that wants to come and show, you know, what kind of badass car they had. And that's kind of how I found out through all that. Jeff Dean, Lancaster, Ohio, 1974 Nova. Well, yeah, when they posted it, you know, a bunch of us seen it, um, thought, you know, done street racing back then, uh, you know, like I guess most of them, um, thought it would be cool. And I, you know, I, I, I wanted to go, but you know, financially I didn't know that I could. And then I had a couple of buddies that said, you know, Hey, we'll all go make a weekend of it, you know, and have a good time. And that's what we done. My name's Billy Edwards. Uh, I was from Green Creek, North Carolina, and I drove a 1966 Chevelle. I ran uh, the National Muscle Car Association. Uh, actually, I won the first championship uh, of the National Muscle Car. And uh, the guy, I believe it was Chuck Green, it was over that, uh, he told me about, you know, the hot rod was going to put on the the fastest streetcar shootout because uh, Comp Cam sponsored the National Muscle Car from Memphis and they held that in Memphis. Actually, they actually kind of took over the little uh, National Muscle Car event for that. And uh, But Chuck told me I need who to get in touch with and uh, I'm trying to think who I called. And so now that we have an understanding of how these racers found out about the event in 1992, the big question remains is what they were doing before they got to the race. And I don't think any of these answers will surprise anybody. As you'll soon discover, Randy Lambert's answer here is a common refrain. No, we were all street racers. <laughs> Way back then, nobody really cared about the clocks. Everybody kind of had a sense to what everybody should do. And most guys just didn't go to tracks. And that deal that NMC put on, they didn't post no times. So, oh. so nobody was really worried about seeing everything. But yeah, up here, by where we're at, I mean, I'm in Northwest Indiana, kind of South Chicago. We street raced every weekend. <laughs> um, I would say I had fear of that from like the mid 80s to 1990 and by that time i couldn't buy a race i was trying to race motorcycles and spotting them 25 cars on the street and <laughs> you know it was just to the point it seriously it was to the point where i was just i didn't even care if they had any money i was just sick of driving around you know uh spot to spot not getting any races and you know because in the beginning you know it was nothing to get two three races a night and then after that once you become probably you know what would be known as the fastest they don't know how fast you are but they know nothing can beat you so literally you would just drive around and couldn't get a race so the timing couldn't have been more perfect because at that point i was just like i want everybody to see what i run and i know there was a lot of personal friends of mine that were shocked to see how fast i actually went oh that's what i always did i was well known actually i had a camaro uh, i run the national muscle car a 68 camaro 
and uh, I run so much on the road, me and my brother both, we, that's all we was known for, the street race, and it was a really good place just right there within a half a mile of the house to street race, and we were known because uh, well, it's right there to North Carolina, South Carolina state line, and uh, the highway patrols had to come out of Spartanburg, and it was about 20 miles for them to come, so you could get two or three races off before the police showed up. But we would, uh, I would take the car and go to Charlotte, to uh, go to Greenville. I mean, we would travel to get other street races because it was so hard to get races around the house. But I had the Camaro that I drove on the road. I would drive to the drag strip and get a race with a drag car, and they would follow me back to what we called the hill, and I would race them and let them unload their cars off of trailers, and I'd drive. They'd follow me back, me driving my car, and uh, and street race them and beat them. And uh, so finally, uh, the National Muscle Car, I heard about that at Darlington, South Carolina. And I told my buddy, I said, you know, I can't dang beg a dang street race. I said, they're having a street car shootout. I said, I kind of wonder how I compare with the other guys. And they had a 20-mile drive. And I said, well, the drive's no problem. I said, uh, let's just load the old Camaro up and go down there and see what we can do with them guys. And uh, I was running. You had the requirements. You had to run DOT tires. Well, at the time, M&H had just come out with a good, short, soft compound tire, but I couldn't get them. No, uh, I called M and H, and they only had a few that first runs off. Well, the guys from Memphis showed up with the tires. Here I was running no more hard uh, Mickey Thompson Sportsman <laughs> tires, you know. And uh, and these guys shoot, they would uh, dang, they would leave on me and get about five car lengths out because all I was just lighting the tires up, but. Half track, uh, I'd finally get hooked up and I'd blow them away on top end. But uh, for an eighth of a mile, they could beat me. A quarter of a mile, I'd go by. But uh, I won the, the very first NMCA championship I went to in Darlington. I won that one. And I didn't go to the one in uh, Illinois. And then they had one back at Memphis. And I went out there and I had the Mickey Thompson. I mean, the MH Street tires. So. Uh, but I was set the record and won the race at Darlington, then reset the record and won the race at Memphis. And Osley's Chevelle Parks out of Graham, North Carolina, he said, if you build a Chevelle, he said, I'll help you out. And uh, I said, well, I, the Camaro, the Camaro, I run some races out at Atlanta Dragway. Any streetcar shootout I could run, I would go run. And I won like. 10 on 11 races that year. I mean, it would, uh, I finally got the car running 630s on hard Mickey Thompson tires. And uh, I had it where it'd pick the wheels up off the line and just carry them. On those tires, people were just like, what are you doing? I mean, what are you doing? I'm like, I can't tell you. Yeah, Atlanta, they would have uh, no rules. You can run what you brung as long as you run in Mickey Thompson tires. It was about hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes ride down there, but they would pay a grand to the winner. And I went down there several times, and I'd run against drag cars, but them boys put the mickeys on them, they couldn't get down the track. That's where I kind of started running some of the races like that. I started building the Chevelle out of Roger said he'd help me out, and he did. Uh, uh, he did. He bought me his tires and stuff like that, gave me some money on fuel. I mean, 
uh, couldn't ask for nobody no better to help me you know, on this you know, stuff I needed to go. And so now that we know how the racers kind of got their bones together, which, of course, street racing across the board, as you've heard, what about some of the people that weren't actually participating at the event but happened to be there as spectators? I have two friends in the aftermarket industry that were both there on this particular weekend. The first one you're going to hear from is Roger Conley of Hearts Turbochargers. He came all the way from the West Coast to see what he was sure would be the ultimate streetcar spectacle. My name is Roger Conley. I am uh, in charge of business development for Hearts Turbo. And uh, I was at the 92 race. Uh, I got a phone call from Jeff Smith from Hot Rod Magazine telling me it's probably a race I would really be interested in going to. So me and two of my good friends booked plane tickets. And uh, one of my friends, we all used to street race, had never even been on an airplane before. So we're all 22-year-old guys. We fly to Memphis, get our rental car, and... uh, of course, we go straight to the track just to check it out. Never been to that track, of course. And, and there, there's people they are testing, right? We're like, holy shit, there's people running, you know? So we, we get in the track, and they let us in, and we're walking around. There's probably half a dozen cars there, maybe maybe a dozen. There wasn't a lot of cars there, and Max Carter was there. Another guy that I know who was there that weekend in Memphis is Jeff Lee, who serves as the vice president of digital marketing for the Martin and Company advertising agency that is specialized in the high-performance aftermarket. As a young kid in the pits, his mind was blown. In 1992, my father was a, was racing an NMCA top stock, which was kind of like stock eliminator with a few bolt-ons, and you had to run mufflers. Um, and uh, the hot rod streetcar shootout happened to be at the the world NMCA world finals that year. Oh, I paid a lot of attention to it because, you know, dad had a speed shop and we had all the magazines and hot rod magazine, car craft, all those things. And I, I watched sort of that scene, uh, you know, and, and near us in Michigan and Illinois, there was the, uh, outlaw super stocks did kind of like the nitrous deal. So I was, I was familiar with what was going to go on, but it was, it was pretty awesome to see it kind of unfold you know there was like a i would say there was like an electricity in the pits and all the regular nmca racers were were also interested and there was probably some classes that were similar like they had the um you know they had the street effects class and there was a lot of turbo buicks and and mustangs and things around but uh this was like pro stock coming to our our event you know it was a big deal. And continuing on that theme of this electricity in the pits, let's hear from the competitors individually about what it felt like when they rolled in the gate and looked around and saw exactly who the competition was going to be that weekend, starting with Dan Scott. So I think the feeling was was very exciting, just exciting. I mean, you just had your adrenaline just flowing and flowing. And, and, and I went into that event thinking that, I was going to win this thing, so I'm I'm even extra pumped. Okay, uh, no idea what was going to be there except that High Rider had already put the list of rules out, which was much better than what it was down in Georgia in, in the prior year race. So therefore, we felt a little more uh, able to to contend with what we think the rules are, are, are some kind of a you know good playing field, you know. But it felt very good. We're all excited. I had my family with me, and they were all pumped up. So just, yeah, fantastic time. Here's Rick Dyer's impression of the attitude in the pits at Memphis that weekend. Uh, the attitude was, this is cool, but uh, I'm here to take you out. 
I think I can do it because it was, it, it sounded such like a very level playing field that anybody at any time could have said, you know, I know, or I've heard of him. I think my car's faster than him. Or I think my car's faster than him. And it's such a level playing field that everybody put their input that, um, they said, let's do it. That's why all the Fords, the Chevys, and parts, they all are showing up. Jeff Dean, the street racer with his buddies and his Nova, was also feeling that energy. Well, way outgunned. You know, which we kind of figured. Um, you know, we were small tire, small block, you know, against big tire, you know, big motors. And, and you know, we, we figured that, you know, I mean, it's, it's pretty normal. Um, you just got to go with what you know, you know, and see where you land. Well, Dean may have felt outgunned, Ken Anderson was sizing up the competition. Um, honestly, we weren't that worried. Um, it, 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 you know, they didn't look any faster than we did. Dave Lemon did not exactly share that confidence that Anderson had. I mean, you know, very impressed, obviously. You know, uh, kind of overwhelmed, really. Uh, but I did. Uh, Jim Huber and I had met. Uh, earlier in the year at uh, Indy Super Chevy, we both showed up there to run, and uh, so I knew him, and really that was, for the most part, that was it, other than, you know, Ken Anderson's car was there, and he'd, he had been in the magazines and stuff, so I, I knew of it, and uh, a few others, uh, uh, Max Carter's car, actually, uh, it actually came from here in uh, Decatur, which was nearby city, uh, about 25 miles down the road, uh, uh, one of the guys, old guys that uh, used to run the Pro Street stuff around here local had built that car, and, and somehow it ended up with Max. I can't remember. Uh, I think it went through two people before he got it. But So, well, you know, we knew that car. And, uh, but that's it, you know, pretty much. It was just uh, uh, kind of overwhelmed with, with, with the competition that showed up, actually. Well, Mike Moran may not have been starstruck. He was certainly impressed with what he was looking at. When I was looking around, it wasn't like you, anybody was somebody there that you're looking up to. We were all yeah. just people, you know. We weren't just uh, somebody that, you know, mentors or nothing like that. We were just all, it was a new experience. It was fresh to the planet. It was really just a real nice atmosphere. It was all hype. And and then uh, when we ran, you know, yeah, we looked around. We're like, man, we're the only small block in the whole group of this thing. And I just, uh, I told all my buddies that were down there that I liked our chances because our combination was optimized. And I feel that most of those cars, they weren't optimized yet. So the fact that I was running within a tenth or two of the fastest guy, I think that was just all because they hadn't optimized their combination and mine was. But it, it was a really neat atmosphere. I got to tell you, it was a really cool deal, once-in-a-lifetime thing. Rod Savory didn't know it at the time, but he was in for one of the most memorable racing weekends of his life. Oh, yeah. You know, I think all of us, uh, we ended up not really knowing the impact the whole thing was going to have, but I think when we all got there, we're like, holy crap, this is really, this is going to be something big. And, and it was, uh, I tell you, it was one of the best times of my whole life. And I had a lot of a pretty good, you know, racing career a lot of things happened to me, set a lot of records and things like that. But that first event, uh, there was something really special about that. And, and uh, none of us really knew at the time what it was going to be like. But um, I, I knew right away by looking at the caliper of cars that I thought we might be outmatched. <laughs> and for Steve Johnson, his arrival in Memphis, Tennessee certainly made waves, and maybe not in the way he would have anticipated or perhaps wanted. 
Well, the irony to uh, to that is, I I uh, I think when I was reading your thing, my it said, "What was your emotions when you got there?" Or what was the emotion when you got there? And I I made the comment to my wife. I said they were scared, <laughs> and she goes, "No, they mean what was your emotion?" And I said, "Well, we were we were." Uh, we were excited about it. I hadn't slept for about five days because I was based out of Chicago at the time. I'd been to a super Chevy like the weekend before. Um, I had to drive from wherever that was back to Chicago, back out to long Island to get the car. And then from long Island to Memphis, I mean, it was a, it was a sleepless week. And, uh, you know, so we were excited to be there. Um, it was kind of funny because at the time, because we were getting ready for pro mod, I pulled in, in a uh, top kick with a 16 foot conversion and a 50 foot stacker. And when we pulled in, everybody was like, who in the hell is this? And we had Scott Shafroff's name on the, on the trailer and, and people were kind of losing their minds when we pulled in and we were kind of like the little black sheeps. Cause you know, that was basically most of that event was based around a lot of guys that had been in the magazines and were in that. And we were basically nobodies from Chicago and, and we come rolling in in a stacker, which was, you know, unheard of kind of at the time. And we got Shafaroff, you know, coming in there with us and whatnot. And the irony was they basically made me go out back and park on the side of the road course, like out way outside of the pits they threw us out. So we were like, okay, we don't care where we park. It's actually nice and quiet out here, and uh, we're going to make the best of this. So we just prepared for battle and got it on. Before we get into that battle, which was spectacular on the racetrack and in the pits for so many reasons, I asked all of these racers one simple question. And I asked them if this was the biggest event they had ever competed in to this point in their lives. Danny Scott begins the answers. I've been racing since I got my driver's license. So I was at the racetrack when I was 12 years old. So I was out there in this, this drag racing world forever. But... Uh, yeah, I had a lot of exciting races, and you're asking me how I felt on this one. I felt, oh, man, yeah, this is absolutely a big deal because of magazine coverage and television coverage that we didn't get at all these other races. And, and that was like, wow, you know, you're going you're gonna to hit the television and stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that would be the greatest excitement. Billy Edwards shared that same feeling as Danny Scott. Probably so. It probably was the biggest, you know. The NMCA was a, a good race, but probably the hot rod deal was the was the biggest. And uh... oh yeah, yeah, it definitely there was electricity in the air. There was a lot of buzz, and a, a huge following started just two or three days into it. It just started to get a buzz about it, and you could tell this was something new and exciting. And it wasn't going anywhere fast. You know, it was going to be you know getting bigger and bigger. Um, yeah, definitely. We had been going to the Super Chevys for, you know, I think a good part of that season. That's when ProMod was really hot with them with the Sunoco shootouts. And, uh, you know, we, we were building a, a late model Corvette to go compete there and IHRA, you know. So pulling in, obviously, that was a big event and there was a ton of, of people there. And so it was really going to be at that point the biggest organized race I had ever raced at. And, uh, yeah, like you said, the, the emotions definitely were running wild from just being tired as hell after the thrash that we put in to get there to the excitement of being there competing and, you know, essentially trying to uh, upset all these guys that we've seen in magazines and, and all that. 
So at the time, without a doubt, was the biggest thing I'd been involved in. And uh, it was it was pretty exciting. If there was one guy who maybe didn't share this whole electricity, excitement, biggest race of my life vibe, it was Max Carter. Because all of a sudden, a car that appeared to be unbeatable coming into this race began to look everything but. About a month before the race, that car was running. I hadn't made so many laps in it that... Uh, you know, it'd go straight, it'd pick the front wheels up, and then when you hit the second stage of nitrous, it would just lift them up about another two feet and pack them for about 200 feet down the track. My dad and John Stewart, the guy from used to own Top Gun Nitrous before he died, uh, they laid down at the 60-foot markers, and, uh, you know, it would break uh, it would break the 60-foot beams on the back tires. It, it was still 114, 60-foot off the back tire. You know, a car left hard. So we felt like we, we was in pretty good shape. Everything was going along, and then all of a sudden the car got to where it, it was everywhere. It was all over the track, and you were having to steer. I was having to steer it and fight it, and I was like, what? what the hell's going on? Like, you know, this car is a, is a you know, a cupcake, you know, yeah. left heart, everything did big giant wheelie, but I mean, you could look out the corner of your eye at the guardrail until you were parallel. And like, you know, it was, it was no worries. And like, it got to the point where it was just going everywhere. And I was like, you know, what the hell is going wrong? And we got underneath that and looked for, looked for broken suspension parts and couldn't find anything. And then the Saturday night before we went to Memphis, we went down the track. I broke, I smashed my uh, primary transmission and converter. As test runs were being made at Memphis, it became abundantly clear that these cars were all on the ragged edge. Friday afternoon, while performing a few burnouts for a video crew, Ken Anderson trashes the rear end. He will get it repaired, but he'll face other difficulties later on. Another video opportunity would go awry. Joe Yatuma from Novi, Michigan invites the video crew for a couple of easy passes down the Memphis quarter mile. Although Joe is not really pushing his 69 Camaro, something breaks. The problem is not terminal, but the weekend will not be a triumphant one for Joe and his Camaro. Randy Lambert and that big yellow Impala would also face his fair share of breakage. Oh, I looked around and, you know, see guys like Danny Scott and uh, some of the other hitters and and I'm like, well, I brought a knife to a gunfight here. <laughs> so, but, you know, when we started lining up and they, I'm like, I'm as, you know, they were running us against each other, I guess you want to say, but no times, but I was hanging with the best of them. So I figured, okay, I'm gonna do okay. And then they started qualifying and I'm like, well, I'm in the middle of the pack, so old genius Randy says he's going to turn his up a little harder and ended up burning the piston. <laughs> well, you know, in, in my defense a little bit, I didn't really was, wasn't was up on the difference in sea levels and stuff. And I had that thing flying here. 
but then I don't realize we're at like two twenty or fifty five hundred feet here or something. And there you're like at twenty some hundred feet, you know. And I'm like, those pistons didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> I I I yeah, be perfectly honest with you, I didn't even think about going to a different sea level with it. And I had on that trying to get in the middle of the field, I turned on a third kit. That didn't work. I'd never turned it on before. So I figured, I'm going to turn this thing on because the tar was just leaving hard, you know. And uh, yeah, I melted it down. So I was in the trailer before it even started. It wasn't just mechanical stuff that was throwing these competitors for loop in Memphis. There was the actual racing itself, according to Rod Sabry. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. You know what? I had never even seen a pro tree before that event. I hadn't. I hadn't. The first pass down the track uh, in just time trials, it would have been, uh, was the first time I ever saw a pro tree. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of people won't believe that, but that's the truth. I had never, ever, you know, been at a track where they used a pro tree. I ran at Cecil a couple of times, but they always used a normal tree because I was just running brackets at the time with the car, you know, and, and never saw a pro tree. And, and uh, I never really thought about it before then, but I, I kind of, um, you know, got pretty used to it pretty fast. I did pretty well with my lights. And for Dan Scott, it's the old racer mentality. I'm kind of quick but I need to be quicker. It was very exciting, but there's a little more. I wasn't satisfied with my times. <laughs> oh, it was terrible. We wanted to stay and work on the car all night just to get it to go a little faster, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was very cool. Dave Lemon shares his impressions of what qualifying was like. It was. Uh, you know, that was the goal. Uh, that was the whole goal the whole time. And we, you know, the car actually... Uh, I knew could be faster than what I ran, but uh, you know I was low budget, and uh, the parts I had in the car, uh, you know, like from the drive shaft, well, well, the transmission, of course, you know, it's stock type planetaries. It had a stock drive shaft in it, a stock, a tight drive shaft, uh, no aftermarket stuff, and then the the nine inch center section, you know, it just had a uh, stock uh, uh, third member with a uh, mini spool in it. It didn't have a good pinion support or anything. So I didn't leave on any nitrous, you know, because I was afraid to tear it up and, you know, not make, uh, you know, not get into it. You know, my chances of getting in the top 10 would have been uh, gone if I had done that. Billy Edwards' car was running an interesting combination when it arrived at Memphis. And as you're about to find out, it was not running that same combination when it took to the starting line for qualifying. Well, I run nitrous too, but they wouldn't let me run my nitrous. Uh, that was uh, really because I went out there and they said, one power additive, you've got to take your nitrous off. And I'm like, really? I'm like, these guys running 632s with three and four systems of nitrous? And I said, yeah, I got a 510 cubic inch big block, but, you know, I got one system of nitrous, you know. I said, look at these the motors these guys got. Well, they can run one power additive, and you got a blower as your power additive. And it was really odd. Uh, I took the nitrous off. In other words, I couldn't unhook the line. They said, take it, slam off the motor. So I took the plaid, a fogger system underneath the carburetors, and I took it, everything off. And I went out there and made a qualifying pass and was number one qualifier <laughs> with no nitrous just on motor. 
would hear them guys come. I mean, they come. They was just raising cane. We told you to take the nitrous off and all this. And I said, the nitrous is in the back of my truck. I said, it's not on the car. Oh, we seen you purge it. I said, you're lying. I said, there ain't nothing on my car. Look. And they was inspectors and tech guys and all. They looked at my car and they said, ain't no nitrous on it. I said, sir, all in a box. You said, take it off. And I took it off. And I said, that pass was just on motor. I said, let me put it back on and I'll show y'all guys. <laughs> Mike Moran had none of those same troubles that Billy Edwards had. But as this story will relate to you, you can take the boy away from the street races, but you can't take the street racer out of the boy. I actually, uh, I, I got this funny story that I tell everybody that wants to know about the old days that uh, when they when that Joe Pettis came around and we were racing on the street, there was, uh, you probably know who Kurt Urban is. He was a good close personal friend of mine and still is. He, uh, he was racing with, uh, Joey Atuma in the survivor car. And, uh, you know, they were running like nine thirties on, you know, three stages of nitrous. And, and then, uh, you know, when we went to Memphis, I remember, you know, we were just like two days of testing before the actual race. And I went out there and, you know, the clocks were on, and I was running like 9.20, 9.23, and Joey and them were going 9.30, 9.35, and and, uh, Kurt's like, wow, I never really knew that car was that fast, and, you know, little did you know, I never even had the nitrous bottle on, I was just testing (laughs) on motor, and uh, and then then Kurt walked over and looked at the car, and he goes, have you got a clutchless five-speed in that car? And I'm like, uh, Kurt, this car has been the same for five years on the street. He goes, dude, I heard you shift five times. I never could hear it on the street, but on the track, it was real prevalent. And then uh, he looked under the car when it was up on the trailer, and he goes, you've been lying to everybody. He goes, why do you even have that automatic shifter sitting on top of the tunnel? I'm like, it's all for looks. When we opened up first round, it was me and Savory. I didn't know who Rod was. We just were, like, we were anxious to get to the front of the line. We were the very first two cars down the track, absolutely the first two, and we both went 880, you know. And then uh, Kurt, like, you know, was kind of mad at me the whole rest of the weekend, just be like, you ever told me you were that fast? Never knew you had a clutchless transmission, blah, blah, blah. So kind of a funny story. To explore both ends of the qualifying spectrum, we should first talk to the number one qualifier at Memphis in 1992, Rod Sabry. I, yeah, I really was. Um, I knew there was something wrong with my car from the very beginning because we didn't, we never made a pass as fast as we had been back here locally. And I knew the track was prepped pretty good. Um, but, you know, I had trouble with my valve train the whole weekend. And, and uh, but, but no, we, you know, I think we went, I think our qualifying pass was a 8.52, I think. And I think Steve Johnson was 1,000 behind me or hundredth behind me. Uh, at 8.52.5 or something. I forget what it was. It was really close. And I even made the comment to Steve Johnson, if he wasn't wearing that Rolex watch, he would have been number one qualifier. (laughs) So now we need to go to the other end of the qualifying spectrum and begin to tell the incredible story of Max Carter and how everything seemingly was going right before he showed up and then seemingly everything went wrong once he got there. The attitude before he got to Memphis was of high confidence. You know, but before we went down there, I, I was like, I was, I mean, like I didn't know I was gonna win, but I, but I figured like if somebody does beat me as good as we got this thing running, you know, it's running five O's in 140 and eighth mile, it's like, you know, and we could go faster than that, and it's like, uh, uh, you know, if somebody does beat us, it's gonna, you know, be some, you know, and Warren Johnson could have showed up, and like, you know, just 
you know, blowed our doors off or whoever, you know, but, you know, I was thinking like, if it's just the regular guys, like this is going to be real freaking hard to be, you know, me and my dad had that car and it was, it was just a pro street car. It wasn't like some tricked out drag car. Like it had no business going that fast. I had a chassis guy when they came out with chassis tech, uh, I started signing testing the cars. I had my chassis buddy. I was like, he didn't have a tester, but he was like, let's just drill a hole in the main hood and uh and check it out so we drilled a little hole where nobody could see it and he looked at it and he was like he was like oh my god he goes this this isn't even tubing this is pipe he goes uh and he goes well to be honest with you max he goes i wouldn't feel safe riding in the pits with you he said you don't want to be in this car going that fast he said if you do i promise you won't walk away and i was like well don't tell anybody because that's all i got to run except my mouth and we're gonna race it and so i mean it was wrong with your brung and like the dude who built it like for a pro i mean it was good it was really nice we got it like paint and everything it was really good but like the tops of the cage like weren't welded and it was just a it was just like everybody thought like it was some sort of crazy drag car and stuff but i mean it had a it had a pinto front end on it or a mustang tube front end on it it had it didn't have a coilover shock on it anywhere it had automotive shocks front and back and in the rear it just had a, a simple coil spring with like a giant washer on top and bottom to hold the car up and then an independent automotive shock at the back with uh, uh, ladder bars and wheelie bars. And he had, he had some kind of funky uh, panhard bar on the top of it. And we switched all that out to a track locator on it. But it, it was still, it was never meant to go that fast. We put the transmission and it went out there. And like my dad thought I was fooling around or something. But like uh, every time you would push the gas pedal, I mean, I'm talking like one you're 800 feet down the track you could like ease down into the gas pedal and the car would just turn left right left right just it was everywhere and i went back in the pits and uh and told my dad i said uh, get the jack stands and the jack out i said something's broke i said i can't drive this thing like that and uh and he was like shit so we we pulled the rear end out of it and you know just had a uh a 12 boat Chevy rear end in it. and uh, and we had looked at it and you couldn't see any cracks in the paint or anything but whoever had uh, narrowed the rear end had just uh, gone around and spot well but not burned it all the way around in a, in a jig and so uh, you could stand on one uh, uh, ladder bar and grab a hold of the other ladder bar and just move it back and forth wow. like a pendulum on a clock i mean it was just completely broke free both axe both axle tubes were completely sheared uh, you know and free inside the center section and i was like oh shit so uh i never forget you know steve johnson was down there with scott chaparoff and they had a they had a big semi from new york and i thought uh well you know i know they got this shit in there so I rode up to him, and I rode up to him, and he looked at me. I had my fire pants and stuff on me, and he kind of looked me up and down. And I said, uh, "I said, Scott, you got a stick welder in that big truck." And he looked me up and down again, and he goes, uh, "Buddy," he goes, "I ain't even got an open end wrench I can weld." And I thought. Did you really just say that? And it's like, you know, uh, I mean, it's a racetrack, you know, 
if I had to race somebody, you know, I'd alone in my spare transmission, you know, just, I'd rather just race them than take a bye. And, uh, then he was like, he goes, I don't even have an open end wrench to loan you. And so I sat there and I thought, well, you better hope I don't get one. Roger Conley remembers seeing an entire scene unfold that was absolutely iconic in this 92 race. And they were running the, the Chevy too. And, and the thing, he go up there and go to make a run. And I think pick the front wheels up and freaking turn right. And so they come back and they're under it, looking at it, messing around. They go back, and it, I think at least two passes I did that. Next thing you know, as we're walking around, dude, they got it had a 12 bolt in it, and it broke the welds on the tubes, and the tube was rotating in the housing. It was a ladder bar car. They got the rear end out of the car on the ground, and they're um, MIG welding the tubes right there in the pit. Who was the mystery man that came to help with a welder? Well, it was no mystery man at all. It was Danny Scott. Here he is in his own words. A great mix, a great group of people. Uh, and I don't know if the question ever get asked, but I should share with you other things that we did together. So, well, like an example, cars were breaking left and right. And there was uh, people grasping at anything they could to get cars fixed. Uh, an example, uh, Max Carter is number one prime example. Uh, that car had a broken rear end in it, and I knew right what it was. I had a welder on my trailer. I could fix that. So we spent the, almost a night there fixing his rear end, put, pull it out, weld it all together, put it back in, did some adjustments. At the same time, Ken Anderson, I just went back to the motel. Ken Anderson calls looking for head gaskets. We go back to the racetrack because I had extra head gaskets in my trailer that I supplied for them to go ahead so they could get their car back together for the next day. Uh, and a bunch of miscellaneous stuff from then out that just we just helped each other out. It's what we would do, you know. Here's Max Carter with his memory of the bonsai rear axle repair in the pits. And so we went back, and Danny had, Danny had one, and he came over there, and we just kind of, everybody grabbed onto the ladder bars, and we kind of eyeballed it as straight as we could get it, and uh, Danny stick-welded it and burnt it all the way around, and both axle tubes were pointed forward when, like, the metal drew up. I mean, it was completely just bent and out of whack. You know, the car used to look awesome when it would leave. And you watch that video on every one of them. As soon as I leave the starting line, I would have to completely shut everything off, both nitro systems and the lift, and wait for the front wheels to come down and start rolling, turn away from the guardrail, then get back in it and run them down. Now, all of that happened after qualifying, and believe it or not, Max Carter made the field, but certainly not with the elapsed time he had planned on. Listen to this. Max Carter, who throughout qualifying was obviously having problems, caught the break of a lifetime. Due to the ever-growing attrition during qualifying, the dwindling numbers meant in order to make the shootout, all you had to do was make one qualifying pass. The 66 Chevy 2 would make the big show, with a last place time of 12.27 at... 81 miles per hour. And then just like that, after a very long night of work and thrashing on so many cars to even get them to the starting line for the Eliminator, it was time to go racing. Here's what round one lined up like. Randy Lambert tows his Impala in the parade. Jim Huber's non-tubbed 69 Chevelle with a 406-inch small block. Greg Cernia's 86 Mustang with a fresh load of nitrous. The 74 Nova of Jeff Dean, which so far 
has run flawlessly. Mike Moran's Pinto Wagon, a small block with a full nitrous chaser. Steve Griebeck's Mustang, 2,800 pounds, the lightest car here. Rod Sabry's top qualifying vet. The other Corvette in the event, George Pointer's Super Clean 61. Max Carter's Nova, with a cloud of uncertainty hovering over the welded rear end. Gene Deputy's twin-turbo Mustang, with plenty of plumbing where most of the hood should be. Mark Tate, a threat to go all the way with high eight-second time slips. Dave Lemon's 67 Nova that stutter steps out of the chute with nine-inch tires. Stacy Nowak's 1977 477-cube Camaro. Stan Shaw, maybe a bit slower, but his 57 is a class act all the way. Billy Edwards, he's got a whole bunch of mid-eight-second firepower in his trick Chevelle. Ken Anderson, who thrashed on his Malibu all night, replacing a set of rings in one cylinder. Dan Scott, the last hope for Cars Motorsports to come home the winners. Steve Johnson and Dave Simpson's Trans Am, the second qualifier, but not giving anything away just yet. With Todd Testerman unable to answer the call, the stage was now set to decide what needed to be decided. And as we're now poised for round one here in Memphis in 1992, I asked Jeff Lee what his dad thought. Remember, his dad was competing in the NMCA, and it's always interesting to me to find out what other racers think about kind of an invading group of racers coming into their own series. This is his impression. He was he was really interested in it, too. I mean, he was a, you know, a lifetime stock eliminator type racer. Um, and, and he had, he'd gone to Indy since 1966 or seven or something like that. So he is familiar with all of the, you know, the pro categories as well, but this was, it felt like it was a movement that was going to start. Uh, and it kind of was, you know, street racing and, and, you know, nitrous was a really big deal back then. It was, it was just getting figured out. I remember, Pro mod was something that we you would watch, um, and it was kind of like a street legal pro mod, and that was that was really interesting to us. Oh yeah, yeah, and there was a whole bunch of different styles of them too. I mean, I know that you know some of them were were uh, dedicated street cars, and some of them were leaning towards the race car thing. And pro street, the you know the fairground pounders movement was going on as well around that time. It was kind of fading out, and they're like, hey, maybe we should make these cars actually go fast so that's kind of the vibe i got from it and with that it was time to go racing here's some highlights from the first round of eliminations max carter's nova takes on steve griebeck's mustang but griebeck overstages getting the red light and giving the round to carter max takes a little off his fastball with a 941 143 Chevy Corvette versus Chevy powered Pontiac. George Pointer's 61 vet squares off with the Steve Johnson driven Trans Am, the number two qualifier. Johnson cuts a great light. Pointer's vet blows vapors 200 feet out, and Johnson rings him up with an 855 163 75. Eliminations continued, and the big names continued to move on. Round two opens with Rod Sabrick, matched up with Jeff Dean, who had just closed out round one. Jeff's Purple Nova is not brawny enough to outdistance Sabrick, who cuts an 862 at 
Sabre's ET and top speed are both off last round's pace, which may or may not signal a problem with the car. Ken Anderson's Malibu faces Dave Lemon's Nova, which in the past 50 minutes has received a complete power glide transplant to replace the one launched in the last round. The Somerville, Alabama racer boots his Nova to the max, but Anderson scores the win with an 897-154-10. But the wounded motor unglues in the lights. For Ken Anderson, a very expensive victory. Billy Edward Chevelle takes on Jim Hubers. Other than their name, the cars share little in common. Blown big block versus carbureted small block. Edwards flames Huber with an 871-161-26. But Huber will finish in the top 10, comprised of the seven winners in the second round and the three fastest losers in the second round. A second round solo for Steve Johnson. He'll take a very polite 21-58 back to the barn and get prepped for round number three. With Randy Lambert's first round motor disaster, Max Carter is again the recipient of good fortune, getting a single and soft pedaling a 922-143.02. That soft pedaling run was not exactly what it appeared at the outset, and once again, Max Carter and crew found themselves in Thrashville. Thing in the second round, every time you push the you push the nitrous button for the spray bars, it just bog. And I was trying to get my dad's attention, and he was all hyped up about something else. And I was like, "Stop! Push the nitrous button!" And you could just see the the nitrous line. And everybody thought I made this shit up, but I didn't. And you could just see the nitrous line just whipping around underneath the hood where it came off. And now we move on to round number three. The Hot Rod Magazine Streetcar Shootout moved into round three. Now that the top ten cards had been decided, there was only one more title still waiting to be earned. The baddest in the land. Billy Edwards opened the round with a single run. And with the numbers he was putting up, he was running with the big dogs. This run, an 872-161-34. Next, Savory versus Deputy. Deputy's Mustang rolls snake eyes and Sabre lifts for a 975-127-85 advance. Ken Anderson serves Steve Johnson the mother of all hole shots, but Ken's motor has a death rattle, and Johnson's late surge beaches the Malibu with an 856-168. Max Carter finally has himself a handful in Dan Scott's thundering Camaro. Carter ends round three, and Dan Scott's hopes for a shootout win with an 844-158-56 that proves the durability of the Nova's welded axle housing. For Max Carter, that semifinal win you just heard is not necessarily the most satisfying thing that you may expect it would have been, making his way to the final. Danny, Danny, Rick Dyers, I don't know if you know Rick, but uh, Rick has got a big mouth, and I like Rick, but Rick's got a big mouth, and he runs it, and uh, he starts a bunch of shit, but Danny's like... Uh, He's like such a relaxed, cool, nice person. His wife is a sweetheart. And I'm like, you know, they're really nice people. And it, it totally sucked to me to have to race Danny in third round and beat him. It's crunch time. Sabre's vet and Edward Chevelle will duel for the right to move on to the shootout final. Sabre slices a 477 reaction time and uses the extra room to cover Edwards with an 862-154-45. Only seven thousandths better than the Chevelle in the eyes. Johnson and Carter 
Johnson's conservative single in the last round allows him to lean heavier on the Pontiac this trip. But Carter's Chevy 2 is quicker, but not faster. Carter takes the win with an 838-160-85, but Johnson would take the top speed glory at 164.59. For Billy Edwards, that semifinal defeat was bittersweet and left a taste in his mouth that still really hasn't left. He knows he could have fared better, especially had he been able to continue using nitrous oxide. If I had got to run the nitrous, well, I dropped the valve anyway, so that's, yeah. you know, that's hindsight. But I would have, you know, if I hadn't dropped the valve and run my nitrous, I would have wore them guys out with slicks because I could have left the line with nitrous, and it would have, I'd have run some high sevens with the car. Eventually, I did. I run sevens with the car. I run 760s. And so now it would be a final round between Rod Sabry and Max Carter. And let's take a minute to set this final round up, especially on the side of Rod Sabry because of the fact that his car had been slowing down the entire weekend, and he thought he knew why. So he came up with an ingenious fix the night before eliminations, which in turn, well, wasn't really the fix at all, but this is still a great racer story. Yeah, we thought, you know, my, I told you I had valve train problems, and I didn't realize it until I got home, and, and uh, we fixed everything, and I went to English Town, and the first pass was uh, 838. I went from an 852 qualifying, and I, the fastest I could go in the fourth round was uh, against Max was uh, 870 something. It just kept slowing down, and then we went, we picked up half a second just by changing the valve train back to where it was. But anyway, um, yeah, the air pan thing. I couldn't figure out what was wrong with my car. I just couldn't figure it out. And we and I talked to a lot of people over the phone. You know, drastically calling some friends, trying to figure out what was slowing this thing down. And I had a problem with the hood design. The the um. It's hard to explain, but I, I knew I needed, I thought I needed an air pan. So we, we actually stole a stop sign. That's, I don't know, I think that I could still get locked up for that. You know, it's, it's probably the statute of limitations is probably over by now, right? 30 years, I wouldn't think. I don't think they're going to mess with an old criminal like me. But, but uh, yeah, we stole a stop sign and carried the hood up in the room in the elevator. And I, I, I made a, because I'm, you know, I do sheet metal work, right? Yeah. So I did, I did the work on the hood on my bed in the, in the room. <laughs> and now here's how it went down in the final round. And then all the money was on the table. Sabry and Carter would now decide the ultimate question. Who was driving the fastest streetcar in America? That title would either be traveling back to Millers, Maryland in a 57 Corvette or to Louisville, Kentucky in a 66 Nova. Sabre's best reaction time of the event, a 475, gives him the early edge. But Carter's Nova is just too long-winded with 557 cubes of Chevy Big Block and a wet coat of nitrous. It's Carter at the other end with an 8435 and 16037 to Sabre's faltering 874 at only 15027. Moments later in the pits, it's not Kentucky bourbon, but champagne. That's the beverage of choice. Well, actually, he left on me, and I think I pulled out ahead of him, and about mid-track, he pulled back up along beside of me. And then right at the lights, it went ahead and drove away from him a little bit, but it was, it was definitely a close one. <laughs> I'd also like to thank him. He's the mechanic and crew chief and the tune-up man of the whole operation. Without him, it wouldn't have been running 834 and all them kind of times, and every time we broke something, we'd have probably been out. He kept us fixed and running good. And so that voice you just heard of Max Carter talking about winning the race and working with his dad to thrash his way through it and get the job done is interesting when we juxtapose it against what Max thinks looking back on those times today. And believe it or not, 
it was not necessarily jubilation upon his victory. No, I don't know. It was, I mean, it wasn't like Nirvana or anything like that. My dad was a funny car racer, and, you know, he was pretty famous around here. And, like, I had a, a lot of help from the older racers, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of people that helped me with advice and engine building and different things. And uh, I had been testing all summer, and I felt, I felt more like that uh, I wasn't, this is gonna sound stupid. I, I wasn't I wasn't like really that happy that I won. I was just relieved that I didn't lose. You know, some people want to manufacture or fabricate paint or whatever, and it's like you know, since I was a little kid, sitting in those cars and being around those cars since I was you know one years old. You know, I wanted to drive, and then I felt like you know I finally had my chance, and it was all on me. And I didn't want to let my dad down, you know, he would have been depressed because, you know, he, he was really excited about it. I was just relieved I won, really. I mean, I, I mean, I relieved that I didn't lose, I should say. I mean, it wasn't, I didn't have this great feeling that, oh, I'm so cool because I won. It was just like, thank God I didn't lose and have to go home and tell everybody that I know that, you know, I got beat in the quarterfinal or something. It's like, you might as well not even qualify. Uh, I had I had high hopes that like uh, a month before that race, we had everything going so well that uh, we I had every intention in my mind that we were gonna like really shock some people with what that car would do, and uh, and then it was just like all of a sudden just such a disappointment when the car started getting squirrely and then like blew up all the transmissions and it was just like you know oh we had to overcome every obstacle in the world and then limp it through freaking you know five rounds uh you know get up there and get your little plaque and i, I mean i was just relieved to get out of there with it you know i wasn't you know jumping for joy or anything like that i was just relieved that like you know how the hell did i pull that off and so now is when we move into the next phase of this story and that is the post-race phase and the fact that the fact that this race had such an impact. But before we move to that moment, and we're going to continue to talk to our racers about what happened to them after this race, what impact it had on their lives, what impact this race had um, as far as the overall drag racing scene in the aftermarket. The one thing we need to do right now before we go any further is listen to who actually were the top 10 fastest streetcars in America per the Hot Rod Magazine list at this 92 fastest streetcar shootout. Here's the list. Here are Hot Rod's 10 fastest streetcars in America. Jim Huber's 1969 Chevelle. Jeff Dean's 1974 Nova. Dave Lemon's 1967 Chevy 2. Gene Deputy's 1989 Mustang. Ken Anderson's 1978 Malibu. Billy Edwards' 1966 Chevelle. Steve Johnson's 1981 Trans Am. Rod Savory's 1957 Corvette, Dan Scott's 1967 Camaro, and Max Carter's 1966 Chevy 2. The hottest growing segment in American motorsports right now is Drag and Drive, and the best place to follow it all is in the pages of Sick the Mag. With incredible photography, storytelling, and the inside scoops only those truly in the Drag and Drive world can get, Sick the Mag is a must-have subscription for anyone who loves the adventure, speed, and hard-fought world of drag-and-drive competition. 
Visit SickTheMagazine.com to get your subscription today. That's SickTheMagazine.com. Get your subscription today for your friends or family that love the drag and drive world. There's no better coverage, there's no better place, and always remember, it's a sick world out there. And so now that the race has been run and the top 10 list has been established and this hierarchy of, of fastest streetcars in America officially gets kicked off, there's a couple of different directions to go in the immediacy of this moment. The first one we're going to go into is talking a little bit about what these guys received, which were the jackets. This was one of the most coveted things to get in the world of hot rodding back then was a fastest streetcar hot rod jacket. How did those come to be and how did they get them and did they fit? Let's find out from the racers. Rick Dyer was the man who was instrumental in the creation of those Hot Rod Magazine jackets, and here he is in his own words. When the, when the Hot Rod started doing it, you were racing for, you won that check, which was, I don't know, I think $2,500 or something or whatever it was, I can't remember. And uh, I went to Hot Rod and I said, you know, these guys are beating their cars to death, everything. I'd like to put something together that if they won, it was recognized. I said, then I will go to the company that I work for and that I'm the manager of. I said, we're going to build the fastest streetcar jacket. I'm going to give them out to 10 cars. These are the 10 fastest streetcars that win the deal. One will be made with a one on it for number one. The rest of the jackets will be just top 10. I will do that every year that we do this. So if somebody sees that person and that jacket, it's a one-off jacket, never to be duplicated, and the dies were destroyed, and you could never get another one if you destroyed it because I destroyed all the, all the artwork and everything and uh, the printers. The, the, the. So I was giving these guys something that they could wear to say, hey, <laughs> I did. I spent a lot of money, but, uh, yeah, uh, this is a, it's a... It's a hundred thousand dollar jacket you know but he gave somebody something to be proud of not just sit there and say oh i was one of the top fastest 10. oh yeah which one were you or was it you looked at him and you said hey it's a top 10 jacket he used to be pretty bad well the intention of the jacket is certainly pure and awesome let's just say it didn't always work out for the best for everybody i'll let billy edwards explain it was but it wouldn't i was really disappointed because uh, the jacket i got was a small i weighed at the time i weighed 220 i couldn't wear it couldn't even put the jacket i squeezed into it to get a picture and i think i actually ripped the jacket trying to get it on <laughs> to take the picture and i'm like here i come out here to memphis to run and I, and yeah, uh, and all they was, you know, really paying was a jacket and I couldn't even wear the jacket. And it was like, you know, really, I won't do this no more. You know, I was excited to go and, and everything, but I'm like, uh, you know, at least they could have, well, we're gonna, you know, your jacket don't fit. And I told the guys, I said, you know, this, this ain't going to work for me. Uh, I said, well, I see it. You know, uh, all, I come this, run my car, uh, drop the valve, I still, you know, all this, and I get a jacket that I can't wear. I would have thought at least they would have said, look, you know, let us have another jacket made, uh, extra large or 2X, that you can wear and be proud of, instead of, well, that's all we got, that's all you get. 
and I was like, really? I won't come to another one. Danny Scott had a much more positive experience with the jacket. Oh, as you know, that was a special deal. And uh, you can't walk down the street and see people with that kind of a jacket on anywhere unless you earned it. So it had a lot of respect with it because these were people that were at that race, you know, and they earned this jacket. So, yeah, it was a very good feeling to earn those jackets. Do you still have it? Yes, I do. I have every one of them. (laughs) Jeff Dean also speaks to the level of the accomplishment of earning one of those jackets. Oh, yeah. Got hanging in the closet. Um, And just huge, uh, huge accomplishment. I mean, you know, didn't dream we would end, you know, anywhere near the top 10. But, you know, just luck would have it. And the way it went, you know, we'd done pretty good. So, yeah, we were we were pumped up, man. It was hard to believe. Ken Anderson and his Malibu made a habit of picking up new threads at these races. I have all three of the jackets from all three years that they did it. I want, I managed to get in the top ten all three years. Dave Lemon's thoughts? I do have my jacket, yes, sir. And after the experience Rod Sabry has, you know he kept the threads. I do. I do. Um, yeah, I, I wore it yesterday, actually. Yeah, I still have it, the yellow jacket, and I have my... Uh, my Flowmaster in the sevens jacket, they only gave 10 of them out. And I have the in the, in the sixes jacket, which they only gave 10 out. And they're pretty prized in my in my point of view. And how about Steve Johnson? He was one of the top five of the fastest streetcars in America. This is, uh, well, interesting. I do not. The guy that owned, I, I had the jacket for about a year. And the, and the fellow that actually, you know, financed the deal and owned it at the time, he basically uh, wanted the jacket in. And basically, you know, obviously I had to hand it back to him. It was it was uh, rightfully bought by him. And so now that we have that established, the race has been run, the jackets have been handed out, and one of the things we also have to consider about 92 that we brought up before, there is no immediacy in the Internet. There isn't, it doesn't exist. So now we need to talk about the impact of this race and when people started to understand and feel it. I want to start first by talking to Jeff Smith and David Freiberger on that topic, and then we'll go towards the racers. I asked Freiberger, why was this such a big deal in 1992? Right at the beginning of this thing, there was a few little inklings of streetcars finding their way onto the track, but there was nothing big and organized except for perhaps that Top Gun shootout that had gone on in Atlanta. And we were concurrent with the very beginnings of the World Street Finals happening in Orlando. But I think Hot Rod had the voice and the reach to be able to say, we're doing a shootout, here it is. And then we were able to amplify it with the reach of the magazine and kick the thing off and make the whole fastest streetcar scene happen. Before that event, there was no series for a street legal car that wasn't covered in race decals to actually compete heads up on the drag strip. Someone who agreed totally with that point happened to be Rod Sabry. Listen to this. This is what he was doing before this scene exploded. That's exactly right. See, a lot of people won't realize that maybe until they hear this, but that's the truth. Everywhere I had raced a car before that, and it really wasn't that many places. The only I had raced three places. No, four. I raced at 7580, which is a local track that's closed now. I raced at Mason-Dixon in Hagerstown, which is still open. I raced at Cecil and Maple Grove. They were the only four tracks I had ever been to, and we just ran brackets. You know, that's all they had. No one, you know, you couldn't even ask for a pro tree. And and uh, so a lot of people will think, oh, my God, that's that's pretty cool, you know. And how about the impact at Hot Rod Magazine itself? We begin with Freiburger. 
I don't recall specifically uh, whether we had a bunch of people saying, no, that's not the guy. I have the faster car. But I know that immediately the impact of the event was people building cars. So while I don't recall somebody saying, my car's faster, I want to challenge Max Carter, I do remember a bunch of people saying, well, I can do that and starting to put cars together. It was all over the place. And now Jeff Smith. No. I mean, from a management standpoint at Hot Rod, um, they didn't believe it. We, 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 we kind of flew under the radar, you know, because it really wasn't our event. Because I told us, we're just going down here to cover this because – and they were suspicious because <laughs> I learned very, very early on in my career working for John Diana, who has now passed away. So we'll be kind to him. But um, I, that guy, if, if, if you asked permission, almost I could just you could just about guarantee you were going to send he was going to tell you no. Wow. So we just got to the point where we just never asked or we I. I just never asked him anything. I just, I just did things and then let him come in my office and scream at me for a while and tell me, you know, what an idiot I am and I can't do this. And then I would say, and he, he knew exactly what I was going to say. I would say, okay, Johnny, show me in the rules <clears throat> where it says I can't do this. And this was, I was playing Smokey Eunuch and he was playing, you know, Bill France. Exactly. And, and, you know, he would just get really frustrated with me and, but, the magazine was was just flying off the shelves. We the the magazine at this time in ni- this was ninety ninety two uh, late ninety two. We were uh, we were already starting to see a downturn. We in nineteen eighty nine and nineteen ninety the magazine sold more than it ever did in the history of the of the of the company. We were at over a million paid circulation, and I I don't I can't honestly say that that's the only time it ever happened but i know it happened under under our watch and and that's because the staff was you know totally committed to just doing whatever it took to try and produce the best magazine we could and this was clearly a really good idea and um and so and it just blossomed from there so internally um they didn't understand it at all and so when we tried to push harder and make Total covers. Like if if you look at the cover for 1992, the fastest streetcar race is not is not what's on is not the main thing on the cover. It's only one of three things, and because I wanted to do that, and they wouldn't let me. <laughs> they just flat out said, "No, you're not doing." It. I said, "Well, how do I come up with a three and one issue?" Oh, that's great, you know, which was just what it just watered everything down. Is what it really did, um, and it didn't particularly sell well. But we, you know. It's like when we came up with Pro Touring later on with, with Chevy High, it, it, it didn't set the world on fire when it first happened. You know, it was this is kind of a snowball. You know, you get it off small and go start rolling down the hill, and it gets big, and towards the end, it's rolling so fast you can't stop it. And and uh, that's that's what happened with the fastest streetcar stuff too. Very much right at the end of the first event, we looked at each other and said, we've actually got something here. It's not one of those things where, you know, people ask you, hey, in retrospect, did you know that, say, like my Roadkill TV show, did you know that was going to be a big hit? No, I had no idea at all. But when we left Memphis that day, we were like, this is a thing. We just actually lit the gasoline on fire. You knew that this was going to get big. So now that you've heard from the magazine side of this thing, what about from the racers themselves? What was the impact personally once the magazine published and once people understood what had happened in Memphis months after the fact? Danny Scott opens up the conversation. Well, 
we've already had magazine coverage from the 90 race and the 91. So then when 92 came, it just was a continuation of magazine coverage and, and all that publicity stuff that you're referring to right now. So we had already experienced a lot of that stuff because of the, the one that we went down to in, in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, the friendships, a lot of the people we raced with were from the 90 and 91 race. Max Carter and I ended up runner. I, he won and I was runner up in, in Atlanta, Georgia, you know? So, uh, that was a rematch at uh, Memphis when him and I ran again. I was, I was very impressed because I was kept in tune with it because they had called me a lot of times asking me what I thought and do I have any ideas of how we're going to keep this strong and what we're doing. So I was always impressed with it. And I always wanted to be somebody to say, you know, Rick Dyer's got a, he's probably one of the fastest cars around because I got beat by a guy one time that they walked up and said, you're not going to beat that car. I street race a lot. And, uh, I said, I'm not. And he said, no, nobody beats that car. He's the fastest around. And I thought, man, that sounds pretty cool. I'd like to have that. So I set my goals to build a street car and do that. And then me and Danny Scott got together and uh, we, we started doing that. Then we were doing these super Chevys and, um, and then you get with uh, Smelnik and all the rules and Flowmaster and testing and people were turning their cars around or what they had that wasn't quite right, making them right and come out and the fellowship was great and the families enjoyed it and you could relate to it. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was neat. Um, it, it just, I'm pretty low key for the most part. Um, and yeah, a lot of people, you know, a lot of friends and, you know, a lot of other people that raced, you know, I mean, they, they, they thought it was neat, you know, just a local guy to do good. You know, it's always good. Oh, yeah, it was a, it was a good bit. Uh, some of my closest friends were also, uh, you know, Jeff Chandler and Stacey Nowak. They both, you know, they, were, they went up there with us, uh, took their cars also. Uh, so, you know, <clears throat> we were all just ecstatic about it. And, then, of course, came back and, and uh, you know, a lot of people did ask about it, you know, and, uh then when the magazine came out, it really did, it really did ramp up, you know, everybody, you know, talking about it and, uh, you know, kind of joking or whatever about being a superstar and stuff like that. It was pretty neat. Oh my God. We were like rock stars. <laughs> Charlie Garrett, who brought my engine, he, he couldn't believe. He goes, he goes, every time I open the hot rod magazine or open national dragster, there's that goddamn car. <laughs> Pardon my French, but, but, uh, yeah, we were like rock stars. I mean, Hot Rod Magazine and, and uh, Flowmaster and all the people that were involved in that race, they they really went over the top to uh, put our names out there. And uh, it, it still carries through, you know. I, everywhere I go, there's all these people come up and remember that race. And it had a big impact on, you know, what they did with their cars. It, it's almost like I got a taste. That, I got to tell you, that was pretty much my first time down a drag strip. I had only street raced. And uh, I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. Uh, and then when I went there, my whole attitude changed. Now I said, 
to every one of my friends, I like I have no interest to ever racing on the street again. I only want to be the best at what we did there. You know, I want to be more of a professional and do that because I got a taste of it. And I thought that that was a bigger thrill um, than what we used to do on the street. Well, I think that the the notoriety that the magazine gave us gave us clout, obviously, just like uh, Rod had said. And by giving us that clout we were able to maybe go out and do more customer-based stuff, like maybe not for Rod, but for myself. Um, I went from like one or two customers to maybe five in the first year. And then next thing you know, within the first year, that first race in 92, I could see the writing on the wall, and I didn't really want to do anything to do with wrenching anymore. I wanted to actually be an engine builder and a racer, and uh, I wanted to change a career. That's, to me, it was life-changing. Yeah, I mean, that was the, the creation of that, that took and pushed. You know, we went back home, and we pushed our programs that much harder, and it, it set a staple in the, in the industry for people with that type of car um, and, and kind of started putting – a measuring bar, if you will, because before there was no measuring bar. You ran with the people you ran with. You know, no one said, well, the fastest guy in the country just went 860 with a 3,500-pound car. You know what I mean? It wasn't, and now you're getting, because see, you got to remember, there was no internet. There was no live feeds. All the information you received in 1992, you either got out of a magazine that's three months later than the event happened or a phone call from someone. That's how everything was done back then. So it's, it's really a lot different. So that's why, you know, and that was one of the main reasons we wanted to go to the event because we wanted the, we wanted the real time data, right? We wanted to be there and see it. Oh, it was, I mean, those cars, cause we had our, we had our fastest street car class on the West coast and these guys were, you know, outrunning our numbers of our fastest guy by, you know, three, four tenths. Um, and, and just, but again, like, you know, we didn't have any clutch cars on the West Coast. We didn't have, you know, only one or two of us have big chief motors, um, stuff like that. I mean, these, you know, a lot of them were conventional headed motors, but you had, you had some, some serious hardware there. Um, you know, like Monty Burney shows up. You know, that's the first time I've seen a streetcar guy show up. Monty Burney shows up with Jim Dunford as a tuner. It's like, whoa, this guy's got a tuner. What's that? <laughs> like that's like pro stock, top fuel stuff, you know. You know, he's got a guy out there, you know, doing the jets and checking the plugs and all that stuff. So, you know, we were used to being a two man show on the West Coast running our program and stuff like that. So after the event, I mean it was funny because again the whirlwind continued because I raced one of Len Greco's races, I believe the next weekend in St. Louis. And uh but you know, after the event it was like I said kind of before, it was all those shoulda wouldas and couldas. Um, you know, I, I underestimated Max and he finally made his good run against me. Um, you know, and then Rod was having trouble. He, he, as ironic as it is, you know, Rod basically had like a valve lash issue, you know, or a rocker arm that finally, his car was slowing down every run. So he was getting slower and we were getting faster and I just didn't capitalize. So, you know, I, I kind of felt like that was my big chance to make a statement and I didn't capitalize on it. So I was a little disappointed, but I was also proud that we, we threw a, a low-budget car together compared to, to some of the stuff we raced and, uh, you know, showed up and made a respectable showing. Yeah, you know, the, the ProMod thing was exciting, and I, I actually came out in 93, and, I mean, this was a whirlwind I went through um, going from just a, 
a, a broke street racer to this guy, you know, basically giving me a full ride. And I got lucky enough in 93, I finished fifth in the nation in, in IHRA Pro Mod my first year. And basically a year prior to that had never driven anything with a, a Lenco, a clutch, tuned it or anything. And uh, it, it all got thrown together pretty quick. But the funny thing is looking back, the pro street thing from there, you know, got pretty hot, you know, the next several years and, and led into a lot of neat stuff. And ironically, to this day, it seems like more people know me or that black trans am from that one event in 92 than they ever did from any of the, the pro mod stuff. And I finished 93, number five in the world and 95, number seven in the world in IHRA. So it's kind of funny, the impact that that 92 race had on drag race enthusiasts, you know, was definitely strong. And as we continue on, I have, as you can figure out maybe by this point, I had a list of questions that I asked each of our guests on this show, the same list of questions to kind of uh, create some order where I could build this show in the way that you've been listening to it. And one of those questions I asked is the ultimate unanswerable question. And the question is, what is your definition of a streetcar? So the next several minutes of this show, you're going to hear every single person that has appeared on this episode so far give you your definition or give you their definition of a streetcar or maybe what isn't a streetcar. And as you can imagine, just like when you have this argument with your buddies and your bench racing, everybody's got a different idea. This is the question that nauseates me more than almost anything that we can discuss, and it comes down to absolutely today. I, you know, Brian Lones, I texted you earlier today with a photo of the sorceress which is that guy's wild, uh, what is it? It's a Cutlass, it's, it's a, a 442 it's a, it's a, Yeah, Hurst Olds. And the headline on a 1320 video, YouTube video, is Fastest Streetcar in North America. And what is the entire string about? It's about, well, that's not a streetcar. And that is where the whole thing began. And fortunately today, the answer for many people is, well, it's not a streetcar unless it's competed in Drag Week, which is the event that Hot Rod does, which is five drag strips in five days, and you drive a thousand miles from track to track. And that is the ultimate extension of what started in Memphis in 1992. And our definition of streetcar is now, can it actually drive a thousand miles? And so that's what the whole thing has led to. And I'm comfortable falling on the answer of, if this guy can drive his car a thousand miles and not get arrested or impounded, and it's got plates from wherever his local town is then far be it for me to tell the guy it's not a streetcar if he's actually using it as one way back in 1992 and in every year between then and now the question of that's not a streetcar has come up every single time and the initial answer for us to fix that at the fastest streetcar shootout in memphis is in 1993 we made the cars drive just 25 miles around the road course in memphis and frankly, that ended up breaking a lot of our heroes, and they weren't able to compete. <laughs> well, there was some, I mean, you, you talk about on staff, those were some of the most um, vicious fights in staff rooms, you know, in, in a staff meeting that we've ever had when I was editor. Because there were guys that, you know, Freiberger and a couple other guys on staff were in one corner and, and myself and a couple other people were on the other side, you know, saying, well, we, you know, we got to make this safe. And it's like, no, just let them run what they want, you know? And it's like, no, because we had 3,800-pound cars going, what, I don't know, what were they Eights. going, 180? Yeah. Eights. Yeah, you know, it's like, ah, uh, you know, and, and, and none of these cars have, you know, the, the right kind of safety equipment really for as fast as we're going. There are, in some cases, there weren't rules written around it. 
You know, HRI had not anticipated somebody was would be dumb enough to go 180 miles an hour in a 3,700 pound car. You know, and 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 these guys were just doing some crazy stuff. So that was that was the biggest issue was was always to make this safe. And my my biggest fear was that somebody was going to a get hurt really bad or get killed at one of our events. And that was, that would, cause that'd be the end of it, yeah. you know, especially early on, that would have just killed it right there. And, uh, and, and probably would have cost me my job, you know, because the company would have said, see, it's all your fault. You started this. No one told you you could do this. You did this on your own. You're a, you're a loose cannon. There's the door, you know? So that was always my biggest fear. And, and luckily that never happened, at least in the early part of the, of the events and stuff, you know, but the, and it was a very formative. And when you look at the, the, the huge variety of cars, supercharged cars, turbocharged cars, you know, nitrous cars, you know, Moran out there with a Cleveland with nitrous, you know, in a, in a Pinto wagon. I was like, Oh my God, who is this guy? Right. And then so we'd become good friends and, and uh, we'll talk about it every once in a while. He'll just go, yeah, yeah. Well, nobody expects you to go fast enough in a, in a <laughs> Cleveland Pinto wagon. <laughs> I said, "You're right. Nobody did, you know." And 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 the biggest part too was is that it, 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 how many people blew stuff up in qualifying? Right. Yeah. But uh, a street car can drive a thousand mile and run them numbers. Hey, I mean, you got to give it to them. You know, you really do. I mean, where most of the races I run is a twenty mile drive. Orlando Speed World, you know, shootout stuff. You know, you drove 20 miles, you know. Uh, NMCA, you know, had a 20-mile drive. And I'm like, well, that's that's good enough to say it's a streetcar. These guys drive a 1,000 miles? Yes, yes, I'd consider, yeah. Because they got to put it with the noise and, and the rough riding and all that and uh, still be competitive. I just, I got to give it to them. Them boys flying. They do. And, uh. And to drive a thousand mile too, they deserve saying they got a streetcar. Ah, oh boy, you know that's tough. I mean, uh, the good majority of those cars were pro street cars, and you know they were street driven. We had to make a thirty mile cruise back then, and uh, it was all controlled on the track. You know, at the at the track, we made laps through the road course and whatnot, and and uh, you know they had to do that. But I mean, the cars weren't purpose built pro mods with you know. There were no high-dollar chassis, really. And if you look at the diversity in cars, from the small-tired cars to the, you know, Stan Shaw that year had probably the most elite of a pro-street build. Um, you know, if, if I had been to the Carcraft Street Machine Nationals, you know, prior to that and seen, like, Sabre's cars and, and Stan's cars, and, you know, those were drivable cars. They were they were the wild pro-street, big old fat tires, big engines, slammed you know and and those those cars were pro street you know where you could drive them they weren't purpose-built pro mods and race cars with a set of mufflers and tires on them oh <laughs> I, I i've always been of the opinion that this hasn't changed uh a streetcar is whatever you make of it like whatever your definition of streetcar my definition of a streetcar is if you can drive it on the street legally you know Sands, you know, I don't think, you know, the horn, windshield wipers and all the little things like that. Like, you know, I think, as you know, you know, I have a pretty exotic streetcar. And, you know, it's at Larson's right now. And my thing is, I told Larry, build this car so I can drive it 10,000 miles a year. And if I feel like going to racetrack, I can. 
so we make it comfortable, but it's still full tube, chromoly, you know, <clears throat> laid on the ground, 600-inch all-aluminum big block billet block with, you know, twin 100-and-something millimeter turbos. I think you're going to be in 114s with a clutch and a Lenko and a modular for, for ending it. And, uh, you know, it'll still steel body on it and glass windows, but my definition of a streetcar is, is pretty exotic. You know, I, I, I don't see any limitations. I, I think if you can drive the thing around and it goes over a speed bump and goes in driveways and, you know, that's, and you can register it and ensure it's a streetcar. Well, I, I might make some people upset over my opinion on this thing. I, I think Hot Rod Magazine, the drag week thing is fantastic, and the times the guys are going uh, is just amazing. It's amazing they can drive those cars a 1,000 miles. But on the other hand, I wish they weren't allowed to change anything when they get to the track, maybe safety things like tires or something. But, you know, they're allowed to change, you know, their, their valve train, rocker arms, or they can change fuel. Of course, they change their tires. I know a couple guys even change and put carbon fiber doors on. Um, that's not the same car that they just drove a 1,000 miles. It's a different car. And when they leave the track to go for the next drive to the next track, they change it all back around again. So they're not driving the car that they're racing. That's the thing that I don't agree with. And it's okay, because my dad always told me things always change and usually not for the better. And that's a good, good example of it. Well, I think my car is a perfect definition of a street car. It's an all-steel car. It's got one piece of fiberglass on it. That's the hood. And that's it. So there's a back seat in it. That's a street car. Chevrolet, besides the Corvette, never made a car on the street that didn't have the back seat in it, did they? All right. Then once you start taking crap off a car, my definition is it ain't a real street car anymore. My idea of it is stuff as much power as you can in that car without, you know, weight is horsepower. Weight is the best horsepower there is. If you can make a car weigh nothing, you can put a nothing motor in it, it'll go fast. So. My car weighs forty one hundred and fifty pounds still today. Um, I was on the page with the twenty five mile drive. I thought that anything that could drive twenty five miles back in the day, um, I thought that was pretty good. Uh, you know, any time that we would race on the street, uh, whether you came on a trailer or not, you didn't go home on a trailer. You you know, you finished the race or or showed up with the trailer without it. You always ended up driving it home, but. Um, I thought that that was a pretty good definition of it. I don't care how radical it is or whatever, as long as, you know, you could get, you know, gas at the pumps and you could drive it, um, you know, it was a streetcar. But little do we know in today's technology and, you know, fast forward 30 years later now, you know, they drive 1,200 miles. That's that's badass. That's just one of those vague questions of whoever has, whatever whatever somebody has is what they're going to claim a streetcar is, no matter how radical it is. And that's kind of what the problem became. And I warned Hot Rod about that. It's is like, it's going to be easier and cheaper to convert a pro mod car into one of these fastest street cars than it is to build a legitimate pro street car. Oh, well, yeah, that's a tough one. You know, when it comes to these series and things, anything that can make the rules, make the, make the crews, I, I look at it as a street car. I mean, I just, if you, if you, 
Yeah, I know. I know that's not necessarily what a lot of people think. You know, they think, well, you got to have comfort, you got to have air, you got to. But I don't look at it that way. Um, you know, if you can drive it for the distance it needs to go and do what you need to get, do what you needed to do, then I think it's a street car. Uh, definitely not the shit they run today. My definition of a street car is a car that has A arms on it that, you know, it is completely drivable, you know, doesn't overheat, doesn't, you know, have any issues to drive it. I mean, my Malibu, you could get in that car and drive it to California if you wanted to. Yeah, there was, there's no street ability, in my opinion, to those cars they run today. Those cars aren't really, they're not really street cars. My definition of a street car is, um, I mean, it's got to have plates and it's got to be on the street. You know, that's, that's for me. Um, and that, and that's why I, I kind of gravitated towards, you know, drag week and things like that now. Um, and that's, that's ultimately what, what I would like to build for a car, um, with my old Buick. So that's, that's kind of the plan for mine. So that, that whole scene sort of set my my thoughts on the industry in motion, um, and and what a streetcar could could be. Man, still pretty much the same. I mean, you know, just because it's drivable, in my opinion, don't necessarily make it a streetcar. I mean, it 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 really should be able to get in and in like drag week i mean i'd done drag week in 2016 in a slow car but i just wanted to go and hang out and you know had a blast and to me that's 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 street car if you can do stuff like that you know even though it's a pro mod or, or whatever that's a street car i mean that's pretty cool as as the rules kept getting twisted and twisted more and more is when I started getting more turned off of, of continue racing that program. So my original rules that I described to you is the true meaning or the true feeling of a street car. Now keep in mind, we all know they're not true street cars. These things had slicks on them and that's not legal on a street, but yet, I could drive this thing 25 miles. And in fact, Rick and I used to drive all over our area where we used to live with our cars. And we would go to cruises with them. We would then go to the racetrack. And we could drive them to the racetrack in some cases. But of course, too, many of them were, were, were lots, lots of miles away that we had to just, you know, throw them in and bring parts with us in case we need them. Yeah. I don't pretty much really come to streetcars. I'm a dead hearted streetcar guy. I'm not a. You know, pro mod car with mufflers on them, you know, and and all this other stuff, you know. I believe in street cars, and so that's why I said Larry Larson, you know, he drove it, and um, you know, that's that's what people, that's what drew pe people to our cars is everybody was willing to show somebody their car, let them look at it, touch it, drive it, driving them on the driving people around in the hamburger stand, and. Um, Listening in the radio as you drove down the road. You know, you mentioned Larry Larson. Uh, I did an interview about eight, nine years ago, I think it was, and they said, if you had a hero today, who would be your, your hero? And I said, you know, I'm a very dominated streetcar guy. I believe in streetcars, not these foam mods with license plates and everything that they're building. I said, but there's a guy that I don't know. His name is Larry Larson. 
he drove that car 1,500 miles and went 690. And anybody that can drive something that far and go that fast, I will declare him he's a streetcar. And I said to Cole Cornell, who interviewed me, I said, Larry Larson would be my hero because I believe in streetcars, you drive them, but that man drove that car all that way and went that fast. So God bless him, and it was a streetcar. Cause I, you know, I don't believe in the struts, and the, you know, I don't. I, I, I believe we're building streetcars, you know, and something that you could sit there and say, you know what, I could whoop it there in a minute, huh? Put your car together, come on out, let's have fun, you know. Everybody loved it, and everybody, it just everybody come to see it because you could relate to it. Right. I ask you one question, and you sum this up for me. In nineteen. 92, when we went to Fastest Streetcar in Memphis, if you would have gave us the technology, the equipment that these guys got today, how fast would we go? And Rick Dyer there lands on an eternally awesome question. How fast would we go? There is one final aspect to finish up the telling of this story of this 1992 race and that is to look into the lives of the people that competed the people you've been listening to and we've talked about the immediate impact of what it was like when the magazine came out but what about people down the road how many of these top 10 racers are still involved in racing how many of them are still going to the drag strip and competing the answer is almost all of them and for some of these people that you've been listening to, this was not simply an event that was garnered some local publicity and, and helped them in the moment. This was an event that actually helped to shape their lives and or their careers. And that begins not just in the driver's seat. It begins in an editorial office. It begins in basically every aspect of the story that we've been telling. So let's go and learn about how the net effect of the 1992 Hot Rod Fastest Streetcar Shootout changed the lives of some of the competitors first. Well, it got me actually really um, more involved in drag racing. I, I tell you the thing um, that really impressed me about that race was, and I don't know if you still see this as much anymore, but everyone was willing to help everyone else out. I mean, I had no spare parts, and I know not a, not a lot of guys did, not like today. But, but um, if I needed a transmission and I was going to run, say, Steve Johnson in the next round, he, if he had a spare, he would lend it to me. Even though I might knock him out, you know, with his transmission, I don't know if you see that anymore. Everyone was helping everybody, and that really made a great impact on me, and and uh, kept me racing for all those next years. Um, I, I guess it was a stepping stone. Um, it was my first real taste of uh, of an organized race and doing well at it. Um, you know, as I'd mentioned, you know, Dave had made the commitment financially into the ProMod deal, so I I, I ran ProMod. Um, I actually ran in 92 the, in the fall, the winter series, two pro mod races here in Florida, which I drove a car, which was another project that we had done with Shafiroff. It was the first single four barrel door car to ever go in the sixes or over 200 miles an hour. I don't know if you remember that car, but, uh, basically we, we, that was kind of something we did with Shafiroff and Tim McCamus. And, and like I say, we were the first in the sixes with a single four barrel in a door car in the first over 200 mile an hour. So I qualified that car at the two winter series pro mod races down here. 
And then I went into the ProMod deal, which I ran 93, 4, 5, and about halfway through 96. You know, financially, I was off on my own from 95 into 96, and I just couldn't do it anymore. So then from there, I, transi- I, I transitioned into working for NOS. Um, they, they approached me. They had sponsored me a little bit while I raced. And they knew I still had my motorhome, and I had sold pretty much all my other stuff. And we worked out a deal to where I started going to the races and representing them and kind of being their tech guy. And then that evolved from them. I went to work for Edelbrock, kind of doing the same thing as their director of motorsports. And then on the side at those times, I was plumbing manifolds. I was helping guys at the track. I was tuning cars. And it just slowly got to where um, it evolved into a big enough thing for me. I stepped out on my own and uh, dove all the way in. And Induction Solutions basically was formed and created. No. Uh, well, uh, basically, we just started growing the company since that first Memphis in 92. And and it, it mostly was just engine work and development. And then um, we were involved in the very start of EFI with uh, companies like uh, DFI, um, Felpro Fuel Injection, and now Big Stuff. It's all the same company with uh, John Mini. And we've been uh, developing EFI systems from that time till now. And then as of, like, 2008-ish, we've been doing a lot of our own uh, block design and head design, CAD work here. we got a full-time engineer here. And we've been just trying to stay ahead of the curve on everything that it, there is with racing. We try to do stuff for the first time, uh, or we try to be, um, you know, a record breaker or a barrier breaker. And um, I, I probably bought my first building in 2000. No, it was 99. Uh, and I moved out of the house uh, in the garage at home, and I moved into a shop here five buildings down from where I'm at now, and it was 4,000 square foot. And I remember looking at it, and I'm like, oh, man, this is big. I'm never going to fill this. And within the first year, um, I outgrew it. And uh, (laughs) I think I was there for 10 or 12 years, and then uh, this building became available down the street for me, and it's now I've expanded three times in five years. It's up to almost 25,000 square feet, and uh, we're pretty comfortable here, but we're constantly growing. We've never seen a recession from 08 or even now. It's just the, the company's always moving in a forward direction, and it's always getting bigger, and and there's no way somebody could have told me to look in a crystal ball in 92 and say, can you imagine doing something like this, you know, 30 years from now? I, I would have told them they were a liar. I just would never have thought that we would have been where we're at now. I currently do not own uh, my own race car. Um, I'm looking to get back into doing that, uh, but I have not. I have not done it. I did drive a car last year at one race uh, for a guy first time. I've been in the seat for 18 years. Uh, uh, you know, it was a, it's a no-time car. They needed a driver for that race, so I agreed to do it. And uh, I, I would like to. I hope that turns into something I can do more, uh, more soon. But uh, but now I'm wide open in my shop. We're, we're covered up. I, uh, you know, and, and I do anything drag racing. Uh, you know, as far as fabrication wise. Uh, but the majority of everything is still heads up tight. Uh, you know, it, it, it all it's kind of centers around the streetcar type deal. You know, heads up stuff. Uh, uh, you know, uh, those, not, not necessarily street outlaw type, but 
you know, radio cars, the majority of things I do really truly is radio cars. And uh, so uh, we do uh, anything from start to finish except for wiring. I, do, I don't wire them. I've got to get somebody else to win out clothes if that's what it needs but, and paint, of course. But I asked Jeff Smith if he thought this race helped to launch careers and certainly launch people into the aftermarket industry. This was his response. It did. It did. And, I, and after you first called me and told me that we want, you wanted to do this, I started thinking about that. And, 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 uh, and, and you know, just the, the yes. I mean, it's just amazing how this brought attention to these guys. And, and they were really leaders, you know. I had no idea who any of these guys were. It's one of the best legacies, I think, of my editorship at Hot Rod Magazine. You know, we mentioned I was a staffer in 92. I became the editor in 2001 and only stopped doing it just, I don't know, five years, six years ago, something like that. And I created that Drag Week event very much in seeing the history of this whole thing. If you'll let me, like, go into deep, dark history a little bit, in my opinion, the difference between hot rodding and racing is the question, who has the fastest streetcar? Because we know that racing far predates hot rodding but hot rodding came out of a couple of guys knocking the fenders off their model a's or even model t's and drag racing on main street and so the core of what is hot rodding is who has the fastest street car and i think the earliest organized drag racing tried to answer that with stock class cars and then later the gas class cars those were required to carry license plates and headlights and turn signals back when they began and they ultimately abandoned that and so i think the origins of who has the fastest street car is the core of what hot rodding is it's the core of what drag racing is and it's what makes this exciting 30 years later and so after fastest street car in america shootout you know, that series ended up getting carried out of control. The company ended up buying the NMCA. They allowed all sorts of radical cars. They eliminated any guise of the streetability of it. And when I first came back to Hot Rod as the editor, I invented a thing called the Pump Gas Drags, which you, Brian, also helped me announce in Memphis. And that was a spinoff of street legal racing and then ultimately Drag Week. And uh, I feel really good that Drag Week has been knocked off a number of times. There's a whole bunch of different people running similar events, organizers running similar events. And uh, I think many people accept it as the final answer of what is a streetcar, at least as well as we're going to determine it for them. And that brings us effectively full circle to the end of this story 30 years later. Something that began in Memphis with a quarter-mile drag race that had no driving component has ended with a flurry of events like Sick Week, like Drag Week, like Rocky Mountain Race Week, and others that take the streetcar concept and bring it to the absolute extreme. This show has been a long time in the making, and it was one of the most challenging things I think I've ever attempted here at Dorkomotive. Uh, the interviews uh, have been fantastic. Everybody that's been involved has been great. Um, it is many hours of conversations turned into many hours of editing to string all this stuff together. I certainly hope you enjoyed this story. And I have enough spare audio that I did not use that I can probably make a follow-up episode, and I may do that down the road just because of all the fun stuff I have that 
frankly, uh, the show would be nine hours long if I did that. We're already over two hours at this point. So consider this the end of perhaps the first installment of this story, and maybe I can come back with another one down the line. But understand that this was one of the most rewarding stories and rewarding programs I've put together here at Dorkomotive for the simple fact of being able to talk to the likes of Rod Sabry, Steve Johnson, uh, Randy Lambert, um, all these racers, Rick Dyer, Danny Scott, uh, obviously guys like Freiberger and Smith and Jeff Lee, um, Roger Conley, Max Carter was spectacular. I mean, all these guys, uh, Mike Moran, everybody had something to say. They were honest, and we look back and are able to relive some of these memories. Thank you so much for listening to the Dorkamoto Podcast. I'm Brian Loans, and this has been one heck of a show to put together, and I certainly hope you believe it was one heck of a show to listen to. We'll be back soon, and if you'd like to support the podcast, you go to dorkamotive.com. Thank you very much. The hottest growing segment in American motorsports right now is Drag and Drive. And the best place to follow it all is in the pages of Sick the Mag. With incredible photography, storytelling, and the inside scoops only those truly in the Drag and Drive world can get, Sick the Mag is a must-have subscription for anyone who loves the adventure, speed, and hard-fought world of Drag and Drive competition. Visit SickTheMagazine.com to get your subscription today. That's SickTheMagazine.com. Get your subscription today for your friends or family that love the drag and drive world. There's no better coverage, there's no better place, and always remember, it's a sick world out there.